This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 179. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lomroyasha. And today we are finally looking at the often called god of manga, Asamu Tezuka. We are finally looking at one of his works, and we are delving into... Uh, one of his more popular classic titles, Jororo. Perfect for the Halloween season as a story all about hunting down 48 demons to reclaim the protagonist's own body parts. It's a great story full of body horror and creepy monsters and yokai creatures, and it was a lot of fun to discuss the series and revisit it with our special guests. Carlene and Maya from the blog Coherent Cats, and John from the YouTube channel Murky Falcon. They all had a lot of really awesome opinions and insights into Doro as a series and a franchise through its various adaptations, and I think we had a fantastic conversation revisiting and evaluating Tezka's work in a modern lens and context and seeing the areas in which it holds up as a piece of art and some of the areas where it may falter a bit in terms of storytelling, but still overall I think we had a really good time reading series. It was great finally to cover an Asamatetsuka manga on the show after so long. Like, it's been five years and it's well overdue. And I'm glad we were finally able to get to one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's to more Tezuka. I, I think I said it in the discussion, but uh, I am definitely open to more Tezuka stuff. I think I literally have like a copy of Metropolis just sitting around. And I still haven't, like, opened it, so so that, that might be another good one. Yeah. Well, fun fact is that originally, when you were doing the manga corner, you reached out to me to do an episode of Metropolis. So that's definitely one we should do on this show at some point. Oh, my... I totally forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Even before uh, you had me on Justin and Tom podcast, like, it approached me with that idea and we just never got around to it but yeah that's definitely one we should do at some point but yeah you know i'm a big tezuka fan i've read a, pretty much all of his series released in english done by vertical and dark horse and most of the dmp stuff so yeah like i'm eager to talk about a more series there's just so much Tesca that's been brought over here so much more to be brought over here that we're finally seeing some more titles finally get brought over with Bomba from Kadansha next year so yeah like it was great to dip our toes in this guy into one of his most popular works and characters if not his best from like a narrative storytelling standpoint it's definitely one of his most iconic so it was great to dig into it for sure Especially as one that's also representative of a turning point in his career in terms of his interest in telling more gekiga, more mature inspired stories while still working in the confines of shonen manga and manga for children. So, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting in terms of being that kind of middle ground work in his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but... I guess um, I don't think we have anything to talk about at the top of the show here, which means I think we can get right into our discussion. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing some ominous thunder in the rain. 
I think that it's time to head to our temple and uh, make some conversation in front of those creepy demon statues. So let's not make any bargains. We'll come to regret. Reading this, Osama Tezcamanga was a sight for so eyes, but does Doro still have a leg to stand on? That's what we're here to find out as we revisit Osama Tezuka's Dororo Manga, the classic series that originally ran in Shonen Sunday in the late 60s, 1967 to 69. And we are joined by some very special guests, returning guests Carlene and new guest Malia from the Wago Heron Cats. Hello. Hello. And new guest on the show, John, or Mercury Falcon, from the channel Mercury Falcon. Hello. Hello. We're really excited to have you guys on to discuss Dora. This is the first Osama Tezuka manga we're covering on the show, and I really enjoy your guys' pieces on Dora on your respective uh, blog and channels. And Malia, your piece on anime feminists about how Tezuka kind of explored queer sexuality in not a great context with <laughs> like very <laughs> heteronormative uh, standpoint assumptions. So... Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on to share your perspectives and thoughts on the series with us today. And John, let me say that your NordVPN uh, commercials are some of the best in the biz. <laughs> like not just the Dora one was such a great one, and the one with the Akira Subaraya video was also so hilarious. The Akira Subaraya one actually managed to sell a couple too, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> wow, <laughs> there you go. Uh, great bit. So I think where we'll start with today is just what are our experiences with Doro, this manga, this series franchise, and in general also touch upon maybe our backgrounds with uh, Zamatezka, like what is our relationship with his work. And I'll leave it to you guys, which whoever wants to kind of start with their histories. Um, I guess, can I just go first really quickly? Uh, because sure I've read very little Tezuka, actually, as much as I hate to admit um, I think this was the second Tezuka work I've ever, like, read in full. Um, before this, I had read, um, I should have looked this up ahead of time. Uh, what was that one story he did about the guy who, like, turned into a dog or something? Oh, Ode to Kirihito? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was, that was my first Tezuka work. Ah. And I, I, I read that when I was pretty young, too. So, like, I feel like a lot of it went over my head. So maybe that's one I'd have to, like, revisit. And I've also, I've, I've read, like, a little Astro Boy here and there. Um, but yeah, th this was also my first time reading Dororo as well. So basically, yeah, I haven't really had a lot of experience with Tezuka's work. But honestly, after this, I, I would not say no to reading more Tezuka. This was this was very good. We definitely ought to cover more. It is kind of crazy. We've waited five years to <laughs> finally tackle Tezuka work, especially because I'm a big fan of Tezuka. And I've read a lot of his works. I've read most of the works of his that have been published in English, at least all the titles Vertical published and most of the MP ones. 
And yeah, I guess at the end of saying into my history, like I read Doro for the first time just after the Omnibus edition from Vertical came out back in 2012. And originally they had published in 08 in like three volumes. And that's when I won like the Eisner in like 09 or whatever. But I didn't read it until the Omnibus came out in 2012. And yeah, that was when I was in high school. And that was in a period where I was like really trying to get into a lot of Tezuka stuff. And this was among the first I read. And I was really blown away by Tezuka's art and paneling, which I think is still what holds up the most. But also, oh, yeah. it is surprisingly brutal and darker compared to what you would think of Tezuka in his style if you're more familiar with Astro Boy, at least the TV series that were shown like when I was a kid, like the O3 series, which was admittedly also edited and stuff. But yeah, like it was a surprising work and I really enjoyed it. I really latched on to characters. And now, of course, looking back on it, I appreciate Doro as a character in new contexts. And I think he's still a really fun character for sure. I have a little more mixed feelings on Hiyakimaru as a character, but I still think in revisiting this, like I was a little worried, like in the first uh, hundred or so pages, because like the foundation of the story, we'll get into it, is kind of shaky in terms of like <laughs> Tesla kind of reneging on his own premise and kind of taking cheats in it and some very fast storytelling that doesn't quite work. But then I think once Storo, the character starts having more of a role, and then they actually start going after like demons that hold Hyakimaru's body parts I think that's when they this story really starts to pick up but then even then I think there's kind of waves of like uh, <laughs> interesting points in the story which we'll also get to that probably can be attributed to how the series was written uh, but yeah I'm a big fan of, of Tesca. I've read a lot of his stuff and uh, there's a question later about like how I think it stacks up I will say that I hadn't read Doro since like nearly 10 years ago when I first read it. So in revisiting this though, there was still a lot that immediately came back to me and I remembered. Whereas there are a lot of Tezuka series that I have read that if you were to ask me about them, I can't tell you that much off the top of my head. So I think it is a quite a memorable work in that regard. Before I pass it off to you guys, I'll also just briefly explain the premise of Doro, because it's something that we tend to forget to do, is just explain the premise of the series. <laughs> but Doro is a set in the Sengoku Jidai period. A daimyo makes a pact with 48 demons, where he trades his child's body in exchange for power over the land, military might. And so the child is born without limbs, without organs, and he's cast aside into a river to just die. But he's found by a kindly doctor named Jukai who builds him prosthetic body and raises him and then sends him off on his own on a journey to fight the demons that are in possession of his body parts and reclaim them. And that's basically the premise of the nutsel. And then on his journey near the start of the story, he encounters an orphan thief named Doro, who becomes very interested in his sword because Hyakimaru's sword is like a very special sword that's not fully explained like where it comes from, but that it's passed down from legendary samurai or whatever. And so he has an interest in like taking it and selling it. So he starts to tag along Hyakimaru and then he has adventures from there. But yeah, so premise explained in a nutshell. Now I'll pass it off to John, Carly, Mario, whichever wants to take the baton and run with it. And what your histories with the series and yeah, so as far as Tezuka, surprisingly, um, I've only really looked into his stuff 
to see how it is in relation to Shotaro Ishinomori's work. Because that's, if you've seen my channel stuff, I mostly cover works by Shotaro Ishinomori from Cyborg 009 and Kamen Rider and such. So I started reading a lot of Astro Boy, but only to see how it inspired Cyborg 009, really. Mm. I was personally never really into Astro Boy. And so I never really experienced a lot of Tezuka stuff just for its own sake, really. With Dororo, I'm uh, apparently weird in this case, and that I actually watched the 2019 anime. That was my first introduction. And then after, I like I liked it a lot, so I went back and I decided to read the manga just to see the differences. So yeah, I have a really weird relationship uh, with this series and uh, with Tezuka stuff as a whole. With uh, the way it's, it's, it's a lot different than something like Astro Boy, like you said. Dororo was coming out around 67, 67 to 69, and I think it even like changed where it was being published at one point because it wasn't doing well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it was Tezuka getting into the Gekiga period, which is just when it just means like detailed art. Yeah, more serious, mature stories, which Gekiga was creating kind of a reaction to Tezuka's style of manga <laughs> or whimsical pictures. So it's interesting. He also would embrace like a more serious style. Yeah. Yeah. Where everything was, everything used to have that simplistic Disney-esque style. And then suddenly we get start getting stuff that was more serious, and that's where we get stuff like Golgo Thirteen, where it's like super detailed and serious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Tesca is also other mature works like the aforementioned Kirihito and MW, which uh, you wrote about, <laughs> Malia, and uh, yeah, also, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess uh, I'll say my relationship to Dororo and Tezuka is pretty similar um, to yours, Lum, where I also started reading a lot of Tezuka in high school. Um, I don't, I want to say the first thing I read was probably Blackjack, uh, um, actually. Um, So again, like, I think Vertical putting out like so many titles by him really increased the accessibility and like the range of his work that you could read. I guess I will just say I do like Blackjack still remains like my favorite title by him. Um, Mm -hmm. Though I guess in general, like I do not consider myself like a big Tezuka person. There's still stuff in English that I haven't read by him. Like I honestly haven't read that much Astro Boy. Just like whenever like I look at a bibliography of his work, I'm just like, oh my gosh, we only have like, I don't know, like a hundredth of what he drew. Yeah. So, so it's really hard Very to be prolific. like, ah, like I'm a Tezuka expert <laughs> when even just like thinking about only what's available in English officially. But I also, well, I guess I should say I started reading Dororo in high school and then I honestly got kind of bored with it and I stopped reading it, even though it was all in one omnibus. I want to say I probably read about like a quarter of it, maybe a third of it. And then I just never got back to it. And then the 2019 anime came out and then Carlene and I actually decided to watch it. And we also really liked the anime. And then that actually doing, being invited to do this podcast was like, okay, I guess I'll finally finish this manga that I never (laughs) finished reading, which ironically, I guess we'll get into later. It's like you read it and you're like, oh, this story isn't finished actually. Yeah. But yeah, so that that so I think I do also come from it from the perspective of thinking like I think the anime adaptation that they did recently is like a very good take on the story and like the manga has like a lot of flaws, but I also think it is it was good to read like take another look at it again, particularly like now not being a high schooler anymore and being able to look at it with the eye of like thinking about Tezuka's other work and like places the the things that the anime 
like really picked up from the manga and like really built upon. So like, I think I do have a lot more appreciation and respect for the work now, even if I do think it's pretty, pretty rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think you guys are alone in like, really getting the series just through the 2019 anime first, because that adaptation, obviously, MAPPA, like, very well animated, really great fight choreography, but also they took the skeleton of Tesca's story and a lot of the very memorable, iconic uh, stories in it, and then they refashioned it into a more complete, compelling narrative that was also well more thought out in terms of like uh taking the potential of ideas in Tiska's premise and then running with it like most notably like actually dealing with Yakamaro kind of reacting to you know regaining his body parts starting from a place you know of Kim really not having those senses and then slowly growing into them which I thought was a very interesting change yeah it was it was very coincidental that um I moved into a new place with roommates who owned a copy of the Omnibus right around the time that the new anime was about to air. And I, I had started reading the manga. And then when I looked into the anime, I was like, oh, like, I love this head writer and I love this director. So I definitely like I want to read the manga to have context for the anime some more. Because before then, um, I think my first technically my first exposure to Tezuka was like Pluto, which is like the Naoki Urasawa adaptation, an Astro Boy story. And then years later, I read all of Blackjack from the library, super out of print, but, um, and a little, a little of Astro Boy, some Princess Knight, an MW, which is my problematic fave. And, <laughs> and I guess Doro is also kind of a problematic fave, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not as familiar as Tezuka with, as, as Malia is, but I do like his stuff a lot. And I really like Doro. There's something about it that just like compels me. Yeah, and I think that's a good place to start is that what draws you to the Doro manga? Like, you guys, in particular, like, you sort of got into it or got interested in the series starting from the anime adaptation. And obviously the manga has kind of a very different tone. It does things somewhat a little more clumsily than the anime in terms of exploring its premise uh, and from the initial foundation of... Like, how does a character who lacks all these senses, all these body parts, like, kind of survive in this world? And in the manga's case, the answer is that Hyakimaru kind of has just psychic powers, essentially. He gets <laughs> yeah. Psychic. I, I was going to say, Te Tezuka's really cheating here. Yeah, no. He just, he basically can sense and see things and hear things just fine and just communicate like through telepathy with people very normally and oftentimes the series seems to betray this idea that Kakamara can see because he'll turn around to look at something and John you pointed on your video where he funny moments were like Kakamara glares yeah he put in a subtitle that says glare when he's blind it's like page two <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And not only that, like, Kiyakumaru, despite having no senses at the start, he can describe things as if he can see. Like, when he encounters Doro and he's, like, trying to scare out the bullies, he's, like, describing, like, the ominous thing that's coming their way. Like, how can, does he have that ability to describe, like, what is cloudy, what is... And what I sense is, how can you describe what is cold and damp? 
Like, how does he understand those senses if he does not have a sense of touch? Yeah, I think I think Tezuka had the cool idea of he loses his body and has to get each piece back. But he was too much of a coward to lean into it, is what happened. <laughs> yeah. No, he really yeah. cheated. <laughs> he really cheated at this time. And, yeah, it's such a different... In the, I do appreciate the 2019 anime actually embraces the idea of Kyakamaru not having these senses. He's not even really being able to communicate. But he, he can see auras, but they're just, like, kind of a glimmer. Yeah, I was fine with that, honestly. I was like, that's fine. Since I saw the 2019 anime first, reading the manga, I was just like, what the hell is this? Because, <laughs> like, like you, would, you would think that his mindset would be, oh, I intentionally made the story this way because I want to tell a story about a character who's uh, incredibly vulnerable. And that's why I specifically wrote them into this situation. But no, no, actually, Hyakimaru is, like, perfectly fine. Like, all his own. is an indomitable badass. From yeah. start to finish, very few moments where he's overwhelmed. There are moments where, like, you know, he needs help, but like, uh, it usually doesn't have to do with like him not having senses that he gets him in trouble. Just that maybe there are like too many opponents from the fight or something. But all otherwise, he just hacks and slashes ways through. He can move just fine. He can see and communicate with people just fine. So. He really doesn't need his body parts to grow at all. In this way, Tezuka sort of rejects a problematic part of having, like, this need to reclaim body parts uh, narrative. And that, like, you know, this idea that Hakimara is not whole without his body parts because, like, just without them, he's fine. And it's more about him wanting them back because they're his. And that's just a sense of, like, ownership and justice. Like, th- that this was taken from me and now I and I want it back. So I can appreciate that, but of course it also plays into the problem of this, like, super-powered disabled person, uh, which is also true of the Biwa Hoshi, the blind monk, where it's just, you know, Yakimaru having lacked all these senses is now just, like, the superhuman guy. And also his prosthetic body doesn't make any sense at all, because it's made out of ceramics and wood, but it has more flexibility than modern-day prosthetics have with more advanced technologies and nerve attachments and machine and mechanical parts and stuff. Right, and my memory isn't the best here, so like, call me out if I'm wrong. But if I remember right, uh, there is a scene in Jukai's backstory, and by all means, call me out if I'm lying here. <laughs> um, but, like... When he throws himself off the cliff, I think they do explain that, like, he got picked up by, like, a ship of foreigners, or I don't remember if it was Americans, and, like, they taught him medicine and how to make prosthetics that were ahead of what Japan could make. Right. So I think that was it. Yeah, like, some foreigners. Yeah. (laughs) In the anime, like, uh, his body parts, they resemble more like prosthetics. Like, he has, like, fake skin at the start. I think you described well that he looks like a doll, I think, uh... In your way, or maybe that was Bonsai Pops that I watched, but like, uh, yeah, he moves more like a doll and his body parts like have that kind of quality to it. Whereas in the manga, like, you know, he moves and acts just like a regular human being, like other characters in the series. Like the fact that his prosthetic limbs is not like 
make him different to other people at first glance. It doesn't give him or characterize him with like a, a different quality that puts people at ease. It's just like they end up finding out and then they reject him just suddenly. But initially he's like accepted. He passes as an able-bodied person just fine and he moves like one just fine. Like again, he adjusts, he's already well adjusted at the start. Like he doesn't need his body parts. It's just that he wants them back because they're his. Yeah. I, I feel like Carlene and I have been kind of like discussing the manga since we both kind of reread it for this podcast. But the I think a way that I put it once was that you can kind of feel in the manga that Tezuka sort of thinks like him lacking his body parts is like enough of a struggle, but doesn't seem to like make the connection that lacking those body parts would like create certain consequences for him as a person mm-hmm. or as a character. So like. In a way, it's just kind of, it's sort of like when you're reading it, you're just like, why why are you doing this? Like, you seem to be pretty okay, besides like the war and the demons, but like the body parts don't, are sort of the last of your concern here. Yeah. And in the manga, Jukai outright tells Yakimaru that you're kind of like a cyborg, which is an example (laughs) of the anachronisms in the series, which is one reason why you can sort of excuse or not take some of this stuff as seriously, because Tesca himself like you know has this sense of humor this sense of self-awareness about his work where the characters break the fourth wall there's all these anachronisms like carts having license plates and stuff like that <laughs> and there's random cameos from characters from other manga not even tesca manga just a scene where like just some other characters from a flintstones like yeah, I don't remember what it's called, but there's like a translator's note where it's like, these characters are from another series that is similar to the Flintstones. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a random cameo. So, you know, it has a lot of error. But like, I think that description of Yakimaru as a cyborg kind of is the perfect explanation for him because he is kind of like Astro Boy and how he can de- just detach his limbs and he has all these weapons that he can use from his different body parts. Like not just a sword sitting in his arms, but he has like, a gun in one of his legs and he has like uh poisons or whatever so it's like he his body is full just full of all these weapons at his disposal that he can use his body so it does feel like tesca kind of is just building off of astro boy astro as a character in this regard and just making him as a swordsman and then but you know in this setting it's a little less believable that Yakimaro can't do all this stuff if his body is just made of ceramic and wood. And you really just have to explain it with psychic powers and magic. Well, now I want to know, uh, where's my Astro Boy versus Hyakimaru death battle? <laughs> yeah, that metal should get on that. I mean, surely <laughs> they've crossed over. Like, uh, one thing to note about Tesca's style of writing is, or kind of a quirk of his manga is that he will often reuse character designs between works and Yakimaro and Doro are definitely character designs that get reused in later works. And even th- and this work also features reused designs from the series, most notably Itachi, the bandit who betrayed Doro's father and then later tries to get the treasure, is Hameg, which is a very common character design in Tezuka's work. Like, he's like every other Astro Boy villain <laughs> <laughs> of the week in that series. So. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Kyakimaru and Dororo aren't like, um, they're kind of the prototypes for Blackjack and Pinoco yeah. and Blackjack too, even if they're not like a literal star system in that sense, but they were clearly like modeled after them, which just fascinates me. 
Yeah, you've got the spunky kid and the more like aloof older person and that the kid like wants to be seen a certain way by the older person, like whether like as a brother or as a wife, but the other one doesn't initially see them that way. But then I find it interesting that Pinoco and Blackjack both like draw from Hyakimaru, especially like with their disabilities, since Pinoco also develops psychic powers to apparently like compensate for the fact she can't like vocally communicate with anyone at first when she's just the like systoma in her twin sister. And then Blackjack is also disabled because he's disfigured and he's judged by other people for what he looks like, just the way like uh, Hyakimaru is in Dororo. And Molly and I were talking about how it feels like Dororo is almost like a Rosetta Stone for like all of Tezuka's manga sometimes in the sense that especially because Dororo didn't get like a proper ending. But then he like takes these ideas and puts them in other manga that became a lot more successful, like Blackjack. Okay, so did anyone here watch the Young Blackjack episode based on Dororo? I did. I think so, yeah. It's like three three-parter. I only watched those episodes of Young Blackjack, by the way, just because I was interested in Dororo. No, I did the exact same thing. I like Hirokimaru so much, I was like, I'm going to watch this. Because I don't like the look of young Blackjack. It, no, me neither. I... <laughs> God, you know, I, I remember watching all of young Blackjack when that aired week to week. And now now I need to like go back and rewatch those episodes now that, I, now that I've like actually read all of Doro. Because I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure... I, I'm pretty sure I didn't recognize like who that character was when I first watched that because I don't I don't think I was like that aware of Doro at that point. Right, it's like a full on homage. He just like becomes the manga character. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, he's like Doctor Maru, and then uh, Daigo is like a rival doctor that's trying to sabotage him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doctor Hyaki. It's like a whole three parter. I remember that being pretty long. Yeah. Yeah, it's a. Uh... It sure is something. I did not care for it. <laughs> I think they did Hyakimaru really dirty. <laughs> since, <laughs> since, like, um, it's one thing in the original manga that he wants his body parts as kind of like a symbol of autonomy. But then in Young Blackjack, it's like purely revenge. And I think it, like, and since it's a realistic setting, he has, like, realistic prosthetics at first, too. So it just kind of hits different when it's like a really realistic modern disabled person like murdering people for revenge. But I don't I won't go too much into the plot if it's considered spoilers, but it is like a revenge thing against real people who aren't demons. So Yeah. I think the fantasy aspect of the Dororo manga is kind of what helps the disability narrative not read as problematically as it could. It still is problematic like inherently in the idea of like a disabled person needs to get their body parts back but like because you know Hyakimaru is and also yeah Hyakimaru is is, like another trope that is rooted in problematic stuff but because the tone is just so silly and because like you know it's not seriously tackling a lot of these ideas you can just enjoy it as more of a you know, slash and dice types, you know, swordsman type period piece series set in the studio single Kujidai. Mm-hmm. And it's a fun action series in that respect. And, you know, Tezuka's art paneling, it's, 
you know, his art, I think, holds up the most in the series, more so than the story. And there's just some really great sequences, particularly in the action. Like, after, in the flashback with Neo, like, when Yakimar goes berserk, like, in the of the bandits who's, like, set her, like, orphanage on fire and killed her. Like, the imagery of like him like not like slashing through them and slashing through the panels oh my god is yeah really cool yeah mm-hmm. I, I love stuff like that yeah and tesca really does employ a lot of cinematic techniques or framing in his paneling like i just randomly turned to page to the b wahoshi like slicing the fly in half and then we just see like the two hours of the fly going <laughs> two different houses in different directions and then just like like frame by frame of just like a hand like just slowly taking the half of the fly off and it dropping to the ground just like him like honing in on specific action specific moments of time just creates the cinematic feel one of my favorite transitions uh in the manga is like during the nihei story where tanosuke is kind of recounting or flashing back to his time uh in the service of the shogun when where he first got the sword and we like see him like pour water over himself and then that kind of like wipes that image of him clean on that page oh and my then god you see, yeah like a water transition on the next page put into picture like the flashback like him in the past as he's about to recount the story like that was such a great transition that was such an artful way to like transition into a flashback and like you see tesca just exploring these different cinematic techniques exploring different ways of like playing with the comics medium to get across like interesting art ideas and communicating interesting ideas visually and just yeah like the way that he plays with the comics form is still the thing that i appreciate the most about tesca my favorite thing about doro in particular is that like it's clearly like gekika inspired and like you know it's clearly supposed to be like a more cinematic comic but i i also still like that like his character designs are still very much him uh like you know you have characters like hyakimaru who are designed a little more seriously. Like he's, he's kind of the typical more like a uh, badass sort of pretty boyish kind of character <laughs> that everybody's supposed to love. Um, what, meanwhile, everybody else just kind of looks like they're from like an old Popeye cartoon or whatever. Like I just, <laughs> yeah, I just love the way that meshes together. Yeah. Tesca's style is something I always really love. I love that he can be so cartoony, but he can also have moments where those cartoony characters can be portrayed seriously. You can buy into it. And like all his works, like even his most serious stuff have that quality to him. And so I like how deftly he can move between like a more serious style of storytelling and into the more comedic. That actually reminds me a lot of like the Cyborg 009 manga, because when it originally started in 1974, it looked a lot like Astro Boy. Um, but the manga actually has a lot of social commentary, like Joe being mistreated because he has light-colored hair, because he's part foreigner, and about uh, discrimination against foreigners that was going on in Japan at the time. And it's always interesting to see that type of message contrast with such a uh, simplistic, you know, some would say childish art style. And it was cool watching Dororo, where we get a taste of that, where it, it has that kind of, you know, simplified style while also tackling, like, some really darker themes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, even, like, the most child-friendly of Tesca's works, or at least what people think of the most child-friendly, Astro Boy, would have these moments where it walked between, like, really, you know, childlike 
uh, humorous stuff and then get into some serious territory in that same chapter or a later chapter. So, yeah, like, I, I appreciate, you know, Tess ca- can cr- create in, like, the softer, like, cartoony style, like, those kind of dynamic extremes in terms of, like, the content and tone of his storytelling. Yeah, I think uh, Dororo is an interesting example because, like, you can just see, like, the transition point between him, like, writing more mature works. Like, there's, like, as we mentioned earlier about, like, the fourth wall breaking moments, like, there's still, like, a lot of slapstick and, like, very, like, lighthearted moments, but you can also see him, I think in, I think in Dororo, it's, like, it's a little bit rough because sometimes those lighthearted moments can feel really jarring like he just kind of puts them in where he thinks like they are like he can just sort of fit them and for me i i think like sometimes they would like really shake me out of like a very serious moment but like also like i do admire like the craft that he like puts into them i think like the story you mentioned earlier about like the demonic sword there's like a shot too where i think it's like dororo picks up the sword and he like is about to attack like this old man and his daughter or like his granddaughter. And like, there's a shot of him standing beneath a tree and it's like super detailed and like artistic, like just lovingly rendered. And it's just like this really striking moment of like drama and tension. So like, I think as like a, I mean, like, like you said earlier, um, I think Tezuka has always been cared a lot about themes of like social justice and oppression in his work. But I think when he like really like ups the story to be about more serious topics like the kind of the violence of war, he can really kind of take his craft to a different level of like really hammering the severity of like violence and death and like what that's like to live through times yeah. like that. Oh my god, yeah, like kids just die on screen. I was not <laughs> ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's gonna does not pull punches in that regard. I think the Bannon story is the strongest in the series for that reason, because it is social commentary on the Korean War and the divide between North Korea and South Korea. Like the the wall of Bannon is a direct reference to like a town that was like right in between the borders of the countries. And like the dialogue directly is serving as a commentary on the situation and it shows the brutality and the heartbreak of the situation of like families trapped in your side of the wall and they can't cross through otherwise they'll be put to debt and just random civilians are being put to debt out of like suspicion or just out of cruelty like every day like a mother and her baby are like put the dead children put the dead like Doro's friend in that story who wants to cross the wall to see his mother not only does that friend's mother already dead by the time that he crosses the wall her house is burned down and she's dead but then the friend is also arrowed to dead right alongside Doro right next to him it's just so brutal but then there's also that moment of catharsis when the wall is finally broken down and all the people on either side of the wall can reconnect again. And you have that like two page spread of like them just meeting together, reunited for the first time after being separated so long. So I think, yeah, that was like the strongest story in terms of both like it as commentary, but also in terms of like exploring characters who could navigate that tragedy and illustrate the point of how cruel and pointless and inhumane a situation it is. 
And that story also, I think, did well in complementing, like, not just that story of the, the wall, but also, like, exploring Yakimaru's character with him reuniting with his father and mother and his brother and that tra- the tragedy of, like, him, like, having to fight and kill his own brother and stuff like that. So I think that's definitely the strongest story in the book for a lot of the different things it manages to craft into it. Mm-hmm. That one's good, but I will say the story about the demonic sword was also like my favorite, I think, and also probably has like some of my favorite fights in the series just in terms of like uh, how they're paneled and choreographed and everything. Uh, one moment in particular I really, really like is uh, when they first encounter Tenosuke, and you just have this bit where like right before they're about to duel, I, I really love the way like this is paneled where like it's clearly supposed to be like building tension as like him and uh Maru just kind of like stare at each other right before they go in for the kill basically and you know that th- that's the kind of stuff I really love from the series personally yeah and then I also love that after like their first clash they just have a mental battle for 20 hours and just <laughs> standing there Doro's just waiting for them to finish and then it's just revealed that they've just been fighting in their minds this whole time some real like Dragon Ball Z shit <laughs> <laughs> I think um funny enough I, I will say I, I honestly think my favorite story out of the manga um well, actually, I guess I like I really like to there was the one about like the moth demon that I really mm-hmm. liked. And and honestly, like, I feel like that one, obviously, it all like, I think every chapter has some social commentary. But honestly, I just like found the premise really funny. Like, I don't know, there was just something very funny to me about this guy who was just obsessed with like his moth demon wife. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, but but and also, like, I don't know, I just also found like the whole kind of setup really funny and interesting where like this guy who i think like he's kind of he's kind of an asshole but he's probably is like less of an asshole when he's not like being brainwashed by his demon wife (laughs) um and also just i think the idea of like a moth demon was really interesting too in terms of just like obviously moths are not very threatening creatures but Mm -hmm. um just like obviously um tezuka has always loved insects and like so i you can just really just see him insert like well i'm going to write this chapter about insect demons because i think insects are really cool <laughs> um but i do i do also like the parts like i it is very like on the nose but i i do always like the parts when like dororo and hyakimaru like save this village from the moth demons and then like the village like just turns around and is like well you're clearly like associated with demons and you're a little thief boy, so, like, we're gonna kick you out. And it's just, like, very just, like, I mean, again, like, Tezuka just really wants you to know, like, hey, like, in time, particularly in times of, like, precarity and violence, like, people just become, like, really self-centered and really selfish, and, like, that's just not, like, a good way to live. Yeah, there are two moments in the story where, like, they save a village from demons and then the town immediately turns on them and asks them to leave even though they're injured and hurt and they just save these people and it really does illustrate this idea of this trust of people who are different communities even people who who are helpful or allies like just these communities reject outsiders reject those who are different and in both scenes i really like like uh hyakimaru is asking hey doro's hurt can someone help him and they and it's raining and the villagers tells them, no, get out. And the second scene, like, the villagers are distrustful of Yakimaru because his pathetic body and Doro just gets really upset at them because, like, he helped them and he's just tired of Yakimaru 
being rejected and ostracized just because he is not an evil body person. It's like he doesn't have like flesh and blood limbs. He has prosthetic limbs. So right. I think in both of those scenes, Tuska is making a direct comment of, hey, like treat people who are different or differently bodied right. They are deserving of acceptance and respect. And then he like is very angry and showing like these people who are rejecting these people are assholes. Mm-hmm. I think that second time in particular where it happens uh, after they defeat the moth lady uh, and when they're like, oh, we better kick this guy out of our village. And, you know, Doro gets like really visibly upset and just like really goes off on him. Like, I actually thought that was a pretty heartbreaking moment. Yeah. Yeah. Doro makes some great expressions too. Throughout the book, it also in that scene, there's a particularly great expression, I think, where he's crying, but also he has like, you know, a co- more comically angry expression. So I, I think Tesker really can bring his emotions larger life ways to his style. But then he immediately also compliments the, the comedy because the Flintstones-like guy is in the crowd <laughs> that's running away from Doro. <laughs> but to speak of, like, more of his, like, striking artistic designs, like, to go back to Mama Oba, the moth demon, that's such a great yokai design. And, like, the scene of her in her, like, final form, like, coming out from the lake, is such a striking visual, and the cloak with like those eye-like spirals in her in her cloak, very very cool. Like Tezuka was inspired in part to do a yokai story because of Shigeru Mizuki, who he calls out in the story. Oh, and, yeah, uh, he definitely like is very inventive and draws some very creepy yokai designs throughout it. Oh yeah, all of his designs are honestly that that was I think like one of the things I was also really like just I don't I'm not surprised but just like really like purely pleased at with like just seeing all of his like different designs um because he always kind of gives like a like a glamour shot of like (laughs) when like a yokai will appear just to really show off like here's this cool design that i made and honestly like they are cool so i'm like i love to see it like even like the first demon that you see which is like some weird like it's like invisible yeah the river monster made of garbage yeah and it's like it's honestly like really creepy and unsettling like you immediately like oh yeah that like when all those like villager bullies like start running away like i'm like yes that is the probably the scariest thing you have ever seen in your life and i completely understand why (laughs) um but yeah no all the designs are really interesting Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting because um, we're talking about Shigeru Mizuki, and we we may or may not cover Kitaro soon if you're listening. Um, but <laughs> from from the little Kitaro I have been reading, like for the podcast, um, you know, I, I I could definitely see the influence that Mizuki and Kitaro had on this because th- this kind of feels like Kitaro if Kitaro were like a bit more serialized. I think Doro's kind of cool. Is like you could easily just kind of make this like a sort of like episodic kind of anthology thing, but you do also have those like running narratives of like. You know, Hiyaki Maru looking for his body parts and everything. Like, I, I think it's a good combination. Yeah, especially because the manga, like, feels like, like a pilot for the anime. Like, 48 body parts is, like, the perfect amount for, like, a year's worth of television. Yeah, I mean, the anime originally was going to be 48 episodes. Yeah, so exactly. One <laughs> demon for episode, and then didn't quite work out, like, in pacing. Obviously, it just... The manga got canceled, and the anime also got truncated to 26. It's, the, anime, the first anime doesn't even adapt every story from the manga. 
even though it has anime original episodes. Even in the manga, he already says he says he already has sixteen body parts, like that he already got. So I'm like, what was the point of forty eight? Yeah, it's such a arbitrary. I'm, maybe there's a significance of number I couldn't find in my research, but yeah, it's just like uh, he has a third of them defeated before the story <laughs> even starts, and then through the course of the story, he only gets through eight demons. Right. But then it yeah. also leads you to wonder, like, do you need that many demons? Because through the course of fighting those eight demons, he gets back multiple limbs, both his eyes, his voice. Like, what else would he have gotten back if they were to continue on? Like, it would be like the internal organs, which, you know, we don't really get into mechanics of Hyakim, how Yakimaru can eat and breathe and stuff like that. I was going to say, like, how, how many bones is he missing? How is he able to stand? <laughs> Well, we know that one body part can be made of multiple bones because there's a scene in the 2019 anime where he gets his spine back and it is like the most disgusting thing ever where it's just like the pieces of these fake bones just start protruding out of his back and it's the – it's so gross. You just see these like (laughs) wooden bones and strings just like explode out of his back and it's like, (laughs) oh. They really go hard on the body horror in the 2099. Like him just getting his skin back in the first episode. So oh, so yeah. <laughs> that, that thought did cross my mind while I was reading. Like, oh, man, I hope we're not going to have to see a spine push out of him. I, I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think um, if I remember correctly, like Carleen was the one who looked this up. But like there's like that PS2 game and right. like they had to come up with every yeah. body part that he actually has to get back. It for the game. Mm-hmm. No, the the game is called Blood Will Tell, and it's uh not a very good game. <laughs> it's like one of it's like a really janky video game, but it's like one of the rarest PS2 games, and it's unfortunate right. because like Dororo would be like a really cool idea for a video game where you start off and you're missing all your body parts, and one of the things the game does is that like since you don't have your eyes, you see everything in black and white, and the game has a really bad draw distance. And then, like, you have to beat bosses to get your body parts back, and then that changes how the game plays. So it's, like, a really cool idea. It's just, like, a super janky game that does not play very well is the problem with it. Uh, yeah. That's unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, the clips that you showed in your video were very funny. Where you over, I think you overdub like, him, like, getting his voice back. No, that game is dubbed, and that was not me. <laughs> that's the actual game where he's like, my voice, I got my voice back. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. The, an interesting thing about the game is that it does play upon an idea that Tezuka ultimately abandoned, in which one of the people Yakumar would have to kill to get a body part back would be Doro. Oh like my in gosh. the manga, there's an aborted story beat. There was a board chapter where Yakumar finds out that he can get all his body parts in, back immediately by killing Doro, because Doro was like born with his body parts so he could either continue killing all the demons or he could kill Doro instead and just get them back immediately but obviously Yakimaru is not going to kill Doro so but then that chapter was left out of the collected volume when the series was continued to be published so it's basically like kind of one of those abandoned chapters it's just forgotten kind of like that one berserk chapter that gave story beats out too early and this one never (laughs) included any volumes and stuff that just makes me think like wouldn't it suck if like he had to fight a demon and then like it's the hardest demon he ever fought and then he gets back like his appendix 
(laughs) (laughs) It's too bad. I think like that Doro reveal like introduces such an interesting moral conflict. Like the idea of like, oh, well, if you wanted, you would have this shortcut to get all your limbs back, but it would be at the cost of someone's life. So basically, Hyakimaru is faced with like the same thing Daigo was of like, well, you could just ruin this one person's life to like help you out. And I think that's so interesting, but it honestly raises way too many questions because especially like Hyakimaru's first body part that he gets back on page is like an arm. Like it, it doesn't make any <laughs> <Yeah>. sense. <laughs> like there's that. He gets something and major then, immediately. And then like, and then like Doro's age, like how that works. And then like, not to mention Doro's sex is like, well, if Hyakimaru is a boy, like then how does... Then, but but they want Doro to be like a cisgender girl. It's like, well, then how does that make sense if he has Hakimaru, who's a cisgender boy's body parts? It's it I mean, yeah. too, too many questions. Get back his dick? Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, they never list. I think even in like the video game, they don't list any of that. <laughs> yeah, I. It's it's weird, especially because I feel like Tezuka was already kind of juggling the Doro reveal of like the map on his back and Dororo's, like, assigned gender at birth. So, like, that would have just added another thing into it that would just get confusing. But I do think it's a really interesting concept, especially because um, I was thinking about how Dororo as a story's, like, influence on other media. Like, it reminds me of Fullmetal Alchemist a lot. And so I think it's interesting that in the 2003 version of the FMA anime, they do actually bring that plot point in. Spoilers. But... Like, one of the homunculi in the old Fullmetal Alchemist anime has Ed's arm and leg, and then that's a whole thing. So clearly, like, this also spoke to other people who wanted to, like, use it when the original manga didn't. There's something there. Yeah. I actually had an entire segment of my Dororo video dedicated to comparing it to FMA, and I cut it all out because <laughs> I didn't want to deal with that. That was that was opening up too big of a can of worms for me. <laughs> Don't want inside violence from those FMA fans. There's already enough bad blood from the O3 yeah. lovers, the Brotherhood lovers. So like, uh, you don't want yeah. fuel to that fire. Yeah, I don't blame mm-hmm. <laughs> But it is interesting. Like, even though Doro was technically a canceled work, it had remained with this legacy. And it has one of, I think, Tesco's most popular recognized titles. The point, yeah, it does. It did influence other media, and you can see its influence in other similar, like, uh, Sengoku Jedi Samurai stories, and then stories that deal with characters who have uh, prosthetic limbs or are disabled, but warriors uh, from there on out. Speaking of Dororo's influence on other media, I thought it was really interesting reading the manga and finding out that, like, a ton of stuff, and not to not to change the subject to Shitari Shinomori again, but a ton of stuff from the Android Kikaider manga is actually taken from Dororo, or at least, like, the last two volumes of it. Because, like, Android Kikaider is mostly an homage to Astro Boy, and it, and it was made, like, with the intention of being a tokusatsu superhero comic to be a tie-in with the live-action show. But then, like, the last two volumes, it suddenly has a bunch of, like, Jidai Geki-influenced stuff, because, like, they introduce a new... Uh, a new Kikaider, and he's he's living in like a an ancient Buddhist temple, and the scientist that's like that's like housing him is a monk. <laughs> and then there's even a, a subplot where the villains are trying to catch this kid named Akira, who has a schematic on his back to build this ancient like a Doga statue that can destroy the world. And the way they find out this schematic is on his back, there's a woman giving him a bath, and the hot water reveals that there's a <laughs> schematic on his back. 
So, like, yeah, it's really interesting how, like, it suddenly just took a shift to being, like, this huge Dororo homage. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> He really grew up in there. That's pretty astonishing. Yeah, oh, and like man. that Buddhist temple looks just like the Hall of Hell. And then like all the bad guys in that arc are demons instead of just, you know, regular robots. So I'm surprised that like the manga actually did so poorly when it <laughs> seemed to like inspire a lot of people. That's like what I'm honestly so curious about. Like, I wish like that there was like more information on this because it seems like at the time of publication and when like the anime in the 60s aired, it just wasn't very popular. But then like at some point it just became like, like one of Tezuka's like icon like like Hyakimaru is like basically a mascot character on the same level as like um like you know uh why have I forgotten every single character now? Um but like Kimba, like even mm-hmm. like it just is like Kimba, so Sapphire, yeah. Blackjack. Like and it's like I don't I just wanna like know how, like who who are the people who were just like, no, we have to celebrate Dororo, like this <laughs> unfinished classic. Well, it seems like Dororo was one of those things where it didn't resonate with children at the time, but it definitely had an impact on, like, the older crowd. But, like, the older crowd wasn't really consuming anime. It's it's kind of like Lupin, where, like, the Lupin anime came out and it was doing badly and they were like, why aren't kids watching this? And it's like, well, kids shouldn't be watching Lupin is one of the things. Yeah, <laughs> no. They, they really have to retool into a more family-friendly take with part two after the more greedy part one and... <laughs> Which was also toned down so much from the manga. They should have just gotten Miyazaki onto the Doro anime, too. <laughs> but, yeah, I think also Doro, I mean, we talked about, like, how surprisingly Dark and Violet is. Perhaps it was just a step too far for Shonen Sunday at the time. Which, you know, I'm also maybe too far for young kids at the time. Which is, you know, again, like the anime kind of sort of lightened up, or at least they made an attempt to. I think it's very funny. I think... Yeah, it was in Bonsai Pots where it showed, like, a clip from the original anime where it's, like, Doro just slicing up all these <laughs> demon dogs. And we just see the mascot dog they add into the anime and the, just <laughs> reacting, <laughs> like, with, like, a little whine. It's just very, very funny. You have this goofy, car- cartoony dog sidekick and just, you know, with the self, the gritty hyperviolence. <laughs> and I was, it was just very funny to me. But, yeah. I mean, that's the thing about it, even as like a as like a manga that's like a response or like a like trying to like ride the wave of like Kitaro, where it's like, I don't think Kitaro was ever this violent. So it's sort of like I want like I want to know the machinations of his brain, like going like, okay, so like I'm going to get into Gekiga, which is like really like much more violent and much more serious and dark. But also like there's this yokai like boom happening right now that the kids love Mm -hmm. so i guess we'll just combine both and we'll see what happens Mm -hmm. yeah like i think you definitely see in doro tesca really getting interested in wanting to make an effort and to do something like way darker than he had been doing before but then you know he was still working within the confines of a shonen magazine so there's only he got away with a lot, honestly. Like, the violence in Doro is still really extreme, even compared to, like, modern standards of what series can get away with. Mm-hmm. Even, like, mature themes, too. Like, like Mio's backstory of how she's... she Yeah, how she's had, She prostituted like, herself to care for the children and then yeah. failed. Yeah, I, don't, I might not be remembering this right, but I'm pretty sure, like, in the manga, they don't explicitly say she's a prostitute. Like, the panel they show, she's, like being yelled at and is covered in food 
But, like, they don't actually, like, show anything, really. Yeah, right. she's, like, bullied. And she says, I'm a, I'm a dirty girl, which was just, like, implying it more than anything. It's implied, it's not explicitly shown, and then there's also this element that even though that she perhaps was prostituting, though, she also had to beg for food, and then was just horribly mistreated by the people she was begging from, so. But, yeah, the implications are there, which is why I was, I was glad the 2019 anime just kind of, like, confirmed it. Per se. Yeah. And made it more of a story too, other oh, than yeah. like in the manga where it's just like uh, him telling Doro, hey, the reason why you can't uh, come with me is because, you know, the people who I love all meet tragic ends. And there's not really much more to the relationship between Yakimaro and Mio than that. Just like tragic dead lover, you know, whose <laughs> story is done like 10 pages. So in the anime, like, there's just so much more to it because, like, Mio's song is the first thing Yakumar hears, like, it doesn't doesn't hurt his ears after he got his sense of hearing back and stuff like that. And they expand more on her character and stuff like that. So, yeah, the anime does a good job of fleshing out some of these kind of more uh, characters who you think would have, like, more depth or nuance in the manga, but, like, uh, are kind of just kind of brushed aside. The same is true for Chihomaru, too, from, like, everything that I've seen of it is, like, way more fleshed out dynamic character. And Daigo is... Yeah. <laughs> and Daigo himself also has more nuances compared to the manga version where he's just, like, a power-hungry lord who is also kind of, like, snively and cowardly when confronted with, like, the with Yakimaru, where he either, like, wants to have nothing to do with him or he's like sets people out to like try and kill him you know speaking of um other artists cribbing from Dororo, it just kind of uh, occurred to me uh do you guys think toriyama might have cribbed a little bit from Dororo? what with having because i'm pretty sure in dr slump or raleigh does like the same kind of a like attack i guess that like Dororo does where it's like he just like yells and like throws like big sound effects at enemies and i'm pretty sure raleigh and dr slump does the same thing uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, that's not also unique to uh, Doro as a character. This also, I think, is something Oran does in Astro Boy. Oh, okay. Mm. And, yeah, other characters. But that's also one of my favorite things about Doro <laughs> is that he attacks by yelling really loudly and the sound effects literally hitting people. That's just another great example of Tetsuki using the manga medium to his advantage in funny ways. Yeah, actually, there is a connection there because uh, I'm... A friend of mine, uh, Lord, Lord, well, he goes by Your Moonstone now. I don't know if any of you guys follow like the uh, the Team Four Star Gaming guys. Yeah, Karen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you do know him. Okay. Yeah, uh, he's like a huge fan of Tezuka as well as uh, a huge fan of Dragon Ball, and he's always told me how like Akira Toriyama was heavily influenced by Osamu Tezuka, um, and you can even see it in like his proportions that he draws because like a Raleigh and early Dragon Ball both have that Astro Boy-esque style of proportions, you know, where they have like the roundish head and then like the, the kind of the, the head where the head is much bigger than the body, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Like the comical style of Tesca definitely an influence of Toriyama, but also uh, Tesca's action as seen in this is, I think, a big influence on him as well. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I mean, just speaking Personally, I think Toriyama's comics are like just a little more readable to me, but Tezuka's stuff is also like super readable as well. Like it, it was a very easy comic for me to read. No, I think the paneling is just super dynamic and the it flows really well. Like uh, to this day, I think that Tezuka really comes up with inventive compositions that are just like not unlike any other. And I mean, Doro, we pointed out some great examples, but there are stuff like he does in Phoenix and Buddha that's just even more incredible. But like, yeah, 
uh, he there is just some really really great stuff. Like I always am mesmerized by the art whenever I reread or pick up a Tesca book. But yeah, I mean to also go back on the note of like speculating why why the series just got short the way it is. I think and also going back to like Tesca's like idiosyncrasies. Tesca as a writer tends to like get bored of his ideas a lot. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. He, he, and so he will change like what the, his stories are about on a dime, or shift direction, or just do like a random, a non sequitur story in the middle, even in one of his longer running narratives. So with Dororo, like you know, this is uh, kind of gone over in the profile on the Tuscan English page for it, but like you know, he as he started to get kind of bored or frustrated with Doro, like he got an opportunity to do a sci-fi series in a different magazine. So I think that was like why he ended up dropping the series. And then, you know, the shows, you know, the show was done by his own production studio. So when he started production on the show and then that manga that he did instead of Doro ended, he decided to go back to it. But even then, you know, the the show, it wasn't super successful at the time, and so the manga, which is made as a companion piece of show, also did not last. So that's why there was that second cancellation there. But it does seem like, uh, anecdotally, according to the second Computer's page, like when Tesco went to San Diego Comic-Con in 1980, they were big fans of Doro there. Like a, a fangirl who had like, you know, said that she loved Yakamaru. And this is like before you would think Tesco would be a big deal. Like this is back in the 80s and like his works were not widely distributed or you really have to know Japanese or really know Japanese comics to, you know, know his stuff. So that is pretty remarkable that it already had like an overseas following like that early on. And for a work that, you know, is considered to be like cut short or was canceled not once but twice. Just because of the lack of interest from the audience at the time, and also like the lack of interest from Tezuka himself. Yeah, you can kind of tell, like reading Dororo, that like Tezuka kind of like what we were talking about earlier, which is like he's like he came up with like ah the forty eight demons, and he was like okay, well we already have sixteen of them because Hyakimaru has to have hair, and <laughs> um, <laughs> and then and then there's just like I mean even like the title of the manga itself being Dororo. Right. And, like, presumably, like, you're gonna, like, follow this little kid, but really, like, Hyakimaru is, like, kind of the real protagonist, because he's just, like, the one who's directing a lot of the action and plot progression. And, like, I don't know, there's just, like, points where you just kind of feel like Tezuka's just trying to, like, figure out, like, what he wants to do, like, and just throwing spaghetti at the wall, which, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't mind. It's interesting to see, like what he's like experimenting with but like it kind of it sort of makes sense when he just sort of is like well i think i'm done with that yeah i mean it's interesting the series is named after doro initially tesca wanted to have a child protagonist for the series because he thought that would relate to you know the the younger audience for it in someday more than the adult yakimaru but obviously the protagonist initially was just meant to be Yakimaru, and that is the, the arc of the series, that is like the driving force, is like his quest to get back his body parts. But I do feel that as the story goes on, Dororo, the character, becomes more centered in the story and becomes more of the central protagonist. Like, the quest is still to get Yakimaru's body parts back for the most part, but we are following Dororo more, and we are following, like, 
him getting to interact with villagers or his efforts to infiltrate the manners of the bad guys and do reconnaissance and learn things to help Yakimaru. And there are like just long stretches where we're just following Doro and we're not checking back in with Yakimaru at all. Like most notably in the story with the fake mute. Fudomiyo statue, but also like several other stories as well. We're just following Doro at the center of this. And I do think that perhaps uh, as Tesuke started writing, he started to realize Doro was a little more of a dynamic character who, because of like, he was a more vulnerable character to Yakamaro. He also has a lot more to prove. And so that leads him into situations where, you know, he gets himself in trouble. But he also like has this tragic compelling element to him of like, you know, his backstory with his parents and then his regrets and sadness over that. So yeah, I I feel like the story itself just becomes more interesting the more Doro gets centered in it. And eventually Tesca makes a decision to change what the quest is from finding Yakumari's body parts to then, oh, let's find this treasure that uh, Doro's dad left behind to find. And his mom, like, rode it on his back in blood, which I guess is magic blood because it is still there <laughs> even after he takes baths and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, it was, like, Divine Province that gave her the idea anyway, so maybe that probably explains it. It's magic. But, yeah. So then, yeah, the quest becomes to find, like, that treasure for like the remainder of its initial run in Shonen Sunday. And that's where it ends. Is that, oh, they get to the, they get to the cape and they climb the cliff, but the treasure isn't there because Doro's dad thought that Itachi would find out and said, I don't want him to find out. So I'm going to bury it somewhere else instead. Which leads to the question, why did he tell his mother <laughs> that it was there when when you think of the timeline of this, he would have had to have already buried it elsewhere <laughs> before that. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird continuity problem. It just leads to a non-ending for that whole plot arc. <laughs> I think if I remember correctly, that that like Cape chapter is like the last chapter when it got canceled the first time. So yeah. you really like are just imagining like a reader going, oh, there's no treasure. And I guess they leave the island and that's it. Right. You don't accomplish any of the goal. Yep, that's it. No. <laughs> they don't get the treasure. Yakamura doesn't get all his little body parts back. Like, that's just where it ends. I have to say, I'm surprised how many chapters, like, don't end in Hyakimaru getting a body part either. Even ones that involve killing a demon. It's like, I, and I, I wouldn't consider them, like, a waste of time. But I'm like, Tezuka, you have 48 to do, so. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's surprising. Like, there are only, like, eight demons in the story where he gets body parts back from like eight out of the 32 supposedly <laughs> should have fought. And yeah, you have like demons that like that he fights and he doesn't get any back. Like even ones that he says, Oh, that must be one of the demons that has one of my body parts. Like Mitaro, the, the demon that possesses the horse. Like Hyakamari says, Oh, that's one of the demons. But then they beat the demon possessing the horse and uh, it wasn't, he doesn't get a body part back. So it's like, okay, that wasn't one of them, I guess. <laughs> I I wonder about the appendix so much like <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah like you said it's not like a waste of time because honestly I'm like oh I, like, I like the, hor them. the horse chapter is great like, oh yeah that one's good yeah I know it has a sweet one with like the the poor abused 
horse that nearly dies in battle and then is possessed by the demon, motivated to see its foul full again, but then just gets corrupted in his demon horse and yeah, has a similarly tragic end. Though I'm very upset that they just left the foal behind. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, hey, Doro tells him, hey, you grew up to be strong like me because you also lost your parents. And I'm like, no, don't leave this thing, this foal behind. Take it with you at least. Find it a new home. At least make it Doro's sidekick or something. That would have been fun. Yeah. Why, why not take the opportunity to add a new animal sidekick? Hey, I have to add the sidekicks of the dog in the anime. Tezuka clearly loves drawing horses, too. So, like, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, they announced that other Tezuka manga that's going to be published in English. Um, bon- bon- Bonba. Yeah. I can't wait to read that. It's just like that Doro chapter. So I'm really excited <laughs> to read it. Yeah. It was, a, it was a good sneak peek of what's to come. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, look, if if we didn't already prove that like Tezuka does not believe in happy endings, that that was just that that was one of the most like disheartening endings I read. It was like, oh, well, I guess this horse just doesn't have a mom anymore, and I guess he's just all alone. That's fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's what war does to people and animals. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think if I remember correctly, like, even when I was, like, just looking at the Wikipedia article, it did cite, like, oh, the series got just kind of too depressing to work on, like, at some point, which I just think is so funny, because, like, like, I think the horse chapter is also, like, a an interesting example, because, like, I think if anything, like, the demons in Dororo are, like, if you are reading them as, like, a symbol or, like, a metaphor for just all, like, the things that war does to people, like... Obviously, like, Daigo, like, makes, like, this, like, horrible, like, Faustian deal with all these demons, but, like, a bunch of people who are, like, innocent and don't have anything, like, the horse didn't do anything, and yet, like, they get preyed upon by these demons because of, like, the violence they go through, and, like, they're traumatized, and they don't, like, they're not given any other kind of recourse to deal with it, and so I just think, like, I guess, like, when I'm thinking about it, I'm just like, ah, like, there's so many, like, interesting things in here, but also, like, Tezuka is just kind of circling the drain a little bit, like, he's just sort of, like, I don't know, I guess, like, demons just happen, and it sucks, and that's all I have to say. Yeah, I think it is a little of a cop-out to have a lot of problems in the story, like, be blamed on demons, ultimately. Like, obviously, Daigo and the military conflict is a cause for a lot of the conflict, a lot of the the hardships the characters face in the series, a lot of the people who die, particularly in the Banmon chapter, but also, like, in all these chapters where they're visiting different villages. Like, a lot of the problems are just like, oh, a demon is here, and that's the root of all evil, and they have manipulated the people here into doing bad things. And so, like, that's kind of like the thing with the story with Mamaioba, the mod demon. It's like the guy I ultimately ends up apologizing or redeeming himself at the end for what he did, like, killing, like, that woman who was taking care of the orphans uh, because he was, like, in love with this woman because it's just... You know, oh, I was manipulated by this demon. Now I see the error of my ways and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, it's kind of copping out of like the culpability of humans to do bad things. And it's like, it's very, you know, common cliche messages. Oh, humans are the real demons. Or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, it's to completely blame all the conflicts and all the ills of uh, war and of hatred and conflict between people on the presence of demons is also uh, kind of cheap like good versus evil type storytelling though i mean the series still like as mentioned before does show kind of the casual cruelty of people uh particularly towards yakimaro and dora after they save them and then they are rejected by the people they've saved and stuff like that so 
Tesca does deal with like some nuances of human interaction and how people can just casually mistreat others and casual purely like that. But I do think like, yeah, there are some stories where I would have liked a little more nuance in like the relationship between humans and evils and this idea of morality and spirituality and how they intertwine. Yeah, I was gonna say that the uh, the whole saving people and then being rejected by them actually reminds me of Vampire Hunter D, because <laughs> um, like there's a story in the second book where uh, a bunch of children get kidnapped by a vampire, and so they have to hire D to rescue them, and so D does, and he he rescues them and he brings them all back safely. But then because D is also a vampire, the townspeople wind up just chasing him out of the town, um, and so it reminds me a lot of that too. Yeah, I think actually like. I feel like the demonic sword chapter is probably just like the best at like integrating the two. Like the idea that like the reason why like the sword became like demonic was because like he served like this lord and was like this tyrant who like commanded him to do violence and he wasn't like strong enough to like stand up to him fully. But then like that violence like sort of caused like created this sort of like bloodlust and like warped his life so badly that like even when he like loses the sword, he's like, I have to get it back because I don't know how else to live without just like killing people, essentially. So it's like these humans like are clearly like it's like they're causing like this violence for no reason than their like own greed or like desire for power or just like, you know, cruelty. But then like also like the demons like it's it's like they're just this exaggeration of like human like, I guess, folly in a, in a sense yeah, vices and desires. Yeah, I think that's the that was a really interesting element of the Tenosi story. Whereas, like, yeah, he like the sword had its powers like before Tenosi got it, but like you know, Tenos it was Tenosi's own actions, like having to massacre people under the surface of the sh- of Daigo that like corrupted him and twisted his personality, and so that made him have like a a codependent desire on the sword. But then he like has self reflection of like you know, the crimes he's committed and he has like angst and guilt and regrets about that. And so by the, you know, even though he reclaims the sword, like at the end of his fight back tomorrow, like he recognizes like this is going to keep happening, this bloodlust. And so he kind of sacrifices himself. Like he just feeds the sword his own blood, essentially, and takes his own life to kind of stop it. And so I thought that was, uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting story an interesting like character arc i guess actually too now that i think about it i feel like another interesting story but like kind of i guess almost from an opposite perspective i really like the shark boy story where like you have this like orphaned boy and like because he's been orphaned by like the war like he just ends up growing up with these sharks and also just like indulges in violence because he doesn't know any other way to live and these sharks are like his family yeah it's not realistic obviously but it's just like (laughs) it's just like so funny but like also just like really interesting and like like you're just kind of like well i like killing people to feed your demon brothers isn't like really a solution to anything or a good thing to do but like if you grew up this way like what else would you know um and it's so it's kind of sad when the sharks get killed like because it's like damn that that was your only family. Um, sorry, we can't do anything else for you. And they send him off to sea as he's dying to to be with his sharks. So that was kind of a tragic poignant end to it. I actually love how in the show, they reveal that he cut off his own arm yeah. to feed his sharks. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really cool that he like cut off his own arm just to feed them because they're like his family. Yeah, and that's a good detail. The one weird thing to me about the sharks, though, is that 
like one of them is a demon, but the other one, I guess, is just a normal shark <laughs> because they kill it. It's not like anything happens, but it's like one of them is a is a, a demon that has like when he macros body parts, and the other is just a normal shark, I guess. So. I, I think I joked in my um, in my read through thread that um, Doro jumped the shark almost a whole decade before Happy Days did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before Fonzie. Jump the shark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't really did for sure. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of that, that being at towards the end of the Shonen Sunday run, I guess I don't know. Like, I guess you could say the story kind of shifts in like kind of an unfocused way in like the the revival run in like Adventure King magazine with those last four chapters. I I like the Meteor story. I like all the stories, but it's like. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like the direction is as clear because we have Daigo, like we have this idea of like Hiyakumaru wants to see Daigo again to get more answers and clarity about a situation or whatnot. And then we have like this on off again thing where like, you know, he interacts with Daigo multiple times. I mean, it's like now Daigo is a recurring villain, whereas before he really only interacted with Hiyakumaru back in the Bandman story. And then he hires like, they, they introduce Dice Spot Saburota as I guess a recurring antagonist for Yakimaru, but he appears like twice and there's no resolution to, the, to that rivalry at all. And so, yeah, uh, a lot of ideas truncated and cut short there before like that rush standing where Tesca literally crams in like 10 different demons <laughs> to beat all at once in, in the new way. But then he still doesn't get a body part. I know. No, he doesn't. And it's like, that's not even all of them. It's just like 10 <laughs> demons. If you just count like the spirits that were in the new way, it's like not the remaining like 24 or whatever that should be left. So it's like. <laughs> and there's also a year time skip between the. <laughs> The bone cape story, and then when the the Meteoro chapter where it's realized again. So it's like, did they defeat any demons in that year time skip? Like, uh, <laughs> like, or they just not made any progress? Then we don't really know. And you can't tell because he doesn't like draw Yakimaru any different either. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like when he gets body yeah. parts back too. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been surprised if like Tesca ended with Hiyakimaru literally going, "Our journey has only begun." <laughs> <laughs> Well, the final page does say, like, 50 years later, the Hall of Hell collapsed. So it's kind of, like, implying that, like, 50 years later, he eventually beat all the demons. It took 50 years. It took him 50 years. Like, he got, got, like, eight in the span of a few months, I think, (laughs) he and Dora were initially traveling around that initial run. And then it took a year, and then he got, like, one or a couple more back, and then it took 50 years for, like, the the remaining... He should have continued traveling Doro. It seems like Kim and Doro is really expediting the thought. Well, guys, it, it's really it's really hard to find those last couple demons. It's exactly like yeah. Inuyasha, where like yeah, where it's like it takes they get a lot of the jewel shards up initially, and then it gets a slow crawl for a while. Then like they get the it's insane yeah. at the beginning because after like twenty episodes, they're like we have half the jewel, and then it's like there's like. 150 episodes yeah. to go. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are like hundreds of chapters and hundreds of episodes left. Someone underestimated how long this was right, going to run. Get the, so they get the last jewel shard in like around volume 35. And then there are 21 more volumes after that. Because like because different people have the shards. Even though they found all the jewel shards, they, it still takes until the end of the series for like one person 
to have them all for the jewel to be whole again. So it's like, and that's that's twenty one. That's like four years of civilization after they find the last shark. Oh God! Or, you know, <laughs> the series to end. But I I like that part of the story. But yeah, there is like a very slow crawl where like the actual finding of the shards becomes like super slow. And, like, they find most of the shards, and then they don't find any new shards, and then it's, like, you know, just <laughs> conflicts with Naraku and the, the Band of Seven. And they kind of stall for time and stuff like that. But, yeah. No, very similar. Very similar. It's, that's kind of always a problem when you have, like, oh, we have a set amount of things you need to find, but, you know, we find a lot... <laughs> up front but then it kind of slows as we need to find the rest of it because we don't want the story to end too fast but in this case in Doro's case really it could have there are a lot of instances where like Tezuka really probably should have like uh, front loaded a lot of finding these shirts or at least reduced the amount of body parts he needed to find like in the new anime it's just 12 he needs to get and then, really, 48 was just too much for Tesca to handle. Like, it would make sense for a long-running series. It makes sense with the initial plan with the anime to be 48 episodes. But, like, clearly, he did not get enough time. Or he did not have the interest to see that screw. So you obviously have to take shortcuts. Ah, yes. The perfect number that it'll ensure that it'll go on forever. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, too, like, honestly, like, for example, like, with the... Uh, like when they meet like Tahomaru and his father again, and I remember reading and I'm going, this seems kind of early. Like, <laughs> I feel like you should save this for later, maybe. Like, I don't know, some family build up to the family drama, and then like when Tahomaru dies, I'm like, well, that's it. Like, which kind of makes like when his dad comes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like when his dad just kind of comes back again it's just like what do you want what are you doing here it's so weird because he's not and he doesn't have the witcherata cape for him you'd expect when he encounters uh Hyakimaru again because at the end of the Bama chapter he's so upset over to homer said like he orders his men to go after Yakaru and kill him but then like we don't see really any follow-up to that his attempts to kill him and then like the next time we see them interact he's just more like uncomfortable to interact with Yakimaru again he's like he doesn't want anything to do with him then he gets the idea okay now I'm going to sick assassins off of you and I hired Dicebot Sabrota now he's gonna take you out and then he fails and he just like leaves because he's like oh okay well I'm like uh, my plans failed I'll try again <laughs> it's like and then there's that weird throwaway line where he's like, oh, maybe if I, like, kept Hyakimaru, he would have fixed all of this. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what What yeah. are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I think it's really telling that the 2019 anime and um, the manga Legend of Doro and Hyakimaru were both like, Tahomaru shouldn't die here. Like, we need to keep him around because he's a really interesting character, so... Even even though like I I do agree like the original scene is really tragic and good he just he had a lot of potential as a character absolutely there are a lot of good individual stories in Dora but as we discussed in terms of thinking of the bigger picture Tesca was very short sighted yeah yeah so he introduced a lot of characters with potential that he just kind of killed off too early on and then he had like this over, these overarching ideas of storylines that he just got tired of too easily and just did not see this series through completely or was like too ambitious with them from the start like with the idea of hunting out 48 demons and then just could not 
follow up on that. Or even like Doro's treasure is like, the idea is once they get the treasure, then they can have like a peasant revolt against the samurai. And I'm like, I don't know if, I mean, that would take a lot. So I feel like he didn't want to like realize that either because he couldn't really picture it. But that, but even though it is a theme I like in the manga a lot, it's like the like classism idea. But I think even that was like too ambitious. Yeah. I mean, it seemed explicitly a team of the manga to fight back against oppression against like the the powers that be that are like oppressing lower classes like we see a lot of like explicit commentary on that in the Bandman chapter in Doro's backstory with his parents being bandits who you know had their village ransacked by samurai so they came like bandits to like just attack like samurai working for Daigo in the military but then they kind of have lost their way as bandits because their goal was to like to earn enough money back to rebuild their village and they do revolt and stuff but they kind of have not made any progress on that fund and then yeah the funds are meant for inciting and funding like a revolt against Daigo but yeah they Tesco does not like follow up on those ideas very well and yeah it's the whole treasure idea like they don't find the treasure but there's no implication like how can they find the treasure now like I guess if it's not here at the top of the of the, of the cape like where where is it? Like, there's no explanation of that. Like, what was the point of the map? Is there a double meaning in the map? Like, why would, again, why would his father tell his mother, like, hey, this is the map. This is where it is. When he, at that point, should have buried it elsewhere already. It's just, yeah, again, it's Tesca not thinking through it very well. Well, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, we won't, uh, it seems. Because, like, it's not addressed at all in the remaining chapters when it started up the new serialization. Oh, yeah, because uh, Hyakimaru tells Doro to do something else at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's like the weird thing about the treasure, too, is that it's like there's this whole part and I, I don't remember exactly when it is. I think it might be when they're like at maybe it's at Daigo's house or no, I think it's later. But it's like Hyakimaru or Dororo is like being a petty little thief and is like, I'm going to steal all this stuff from this guy's mansion. And Hyakimaru is like, wait, don't do that. Like, why are you acting like this? We know you have this like treasure map. Like, why don't you just go find the treasure and like grow up to be a responsible, like revolutionary leader. And like, Hyakimaru like calls Dororo a coward and is like you don't want to grow up and you don't want to take responsibility for this but then like later once Hyakimaru is like oh yeah I know you're a girl so like you should like stay out of men's business and war and I'm like what what were you wanting to write here Tezuka I genuinely don't know it's a weird mixed message because he also at the same time tells Dororo you need to fight alongside the farmers and that's who this yeah it just it doesn't make yeah and like I think Tezuka did figure out like pretty early on that like Dororo was like secretly a girl so I'm not 100% sure like there's a lot happening. of foreshadowing yeah there's a lot of foreshadowing you think there's a misdirect with the whole oh maybe he just didn't want him to see the map on his back but I think it's like double meaning of like oh there's both he doesn't want him to see his back he doesn't want him to find out he has a cis female body because even in the, the scene in the bath where Hyakimaru sees Dororo's back, Dororo's like covering his chest, so. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. was always there for some reason. Yeah, he was really dropping hints there. But it was, so it's just like, it, if, especially if like Hyakimaru, it's a little bit mixed in the manga, but you kind of get the sense that like when Hyakimaru's like giving him that lecture, that like, oh, Hyakimaru's right. And like, he's trying to like steer Dororo to be like, 
a better person and like you know just like spur his character growth but then again like the gender role stuff kicks in and i'm like what what was all that for then like i don't i don't know like i just genuinely i don't know <laughs> very strange mixed message when Gamar tries to leave doro behind by saying hey you're a girl so you shouldn't go with me or whatever like you could argue maybe that he's just trying to just steer doro away like he's just trying to push him away and that's why like he's telling him these things because up until that point like he clearly knew he said he knew but he didn't like push doro away until this moment where he's about to confront daigo so if be charitable in reading a nuance <laughs> there even though i with Tesca's track history, mm-hmm. you might just say, oh, like, oh, Tesca didn't really fully get the kind of character he was writing with Doro. But yeah, it is very complicated. The way I interpret Doro as a character, though, is that he is a trans male character because that's how he identifies throughout the series. And even with Hyakimaru telling him that he should grow up to be a girl, like, he gets very angry at that. He rejects that. And in the manga, at least, we don't see him like, listen to Yakamura's suggestion or follow up on that. Right. So in the context of the manga, I am comfortable considering him a trans male character, even though Tezuka's intentions of it are, like, unclear. He sends mixed messages and the 2019 anime also ambiguously interprets it in the ending with seeing a more feminine grown-up Doro, but also <sighs> not specifically saying that he identifies as a woman grown-up, maybe just you know there are feminine looking men too but like i mean it's so weird it's genuinely interesting because like they never really explain like why or how dororo became to like identify as like a man or a boy so you're just kind of left there like you can only really take him at face value when he says like he's a boy Mm -hmm. because like there's nothing there's no like I mean, I think there's there only are, speculation. Like, there's only speculation from Itachi or Hakimaru that, hey, maybe your parents raised you as a boy so that you grew up tough because it's a harsh world and they want to, to protect you by raising masculine, which raises, you know, that's problematic in its own right that girls themselves can't be tough. But also, mm-hmm. it also doesn't seem quite the understanding of generals, their parents had Hibikimaru and Ojiye, because we see Ojiye is one of the bandits, like, she gets involved in the fighting, like, with the rest of her crew, and then when Doro's father is injured by Itachi, when, like, his leg gets, uh, injured after Itachi shoots an arrow at his knee, like, it's Ojiye who's the one who's, like, robbing people to support them, and stuff like that, so, you know, she's proactive in that way and like eventually it's said that she stops because she can't couldn't handle the strain of doing all that by herself but you know it doesn't seem like from what we understood of their parents that they prescribe to ideas of traditional gender roles and that like women aren't strong or shouldn't be allowed to fight or anything so that doesn't seem to be quite the reason of why they would raise or tell or raise him to be a boy and this idea of like doro like yakaro asks someone where speculates hey is it that you don't know yourself that you are uh actually a girl because you were never told or whatever but that doesn't seem to quite be it because doro is very self-conscious about his body right and he seems to understand there are differences between a cis male body and a cis female body but regardless, he understands himself and identifies as a boy. So that's why with all these like conflicting like bits of characterization and context in the story that I still feel comfortable characterizing Doro as a trans boy. But 
you know, because of the messiness of his, his writing and, like, in his other works, like, his understanding of gender and gender roles and sexuality and stuff, like, it is, like, it's really muddy. And you really, mm-hmm. it's just, like, it's just me providing, like, a charitable interpretation just based on what the story presents me. Honestly, I was expecting them to reveal that it was because uh, his father wanted him to fight as a soldier. Because even though his his mom uh, does fight alongside them, she's always wearing a mask, and she's the only person, she's the only soldier that wears a mask. So I figured it was something like that, where he needed to hide that he was feminine. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that one has, like, even less explanation. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I guess that's, like, the thing, too, is that, like, I feel like, honestly, whenever, um, in Tezuka's other works, like, um, like, Princess Knight and... Um, like MW and Blackjack, whenever somebody has like some kind of like gender ambiguity or like some kind of like, I guess like, like their gender is like weird or like, I guess like even like queer or whatever, there's usually some kind of like explanation to say like, oh, this is why they're weird. Like Sapphire has like a boy heart and a girl heart. And that's why she can like fight like a boy and things like that. And like passes <laughs> like a prince um, or like in like mw like the villain it's like it's i i don't know he's like androgynous and like also brain poison like it's there's a lot going on in that one but like there's usually like some kind of explanation and like dororo like they don't really like hyakumaru like says that but like there's not really like a confirmation in the same way like no Mm -hmm. one really like agrees and like the thing about dororo is like he is clearly capable of like acting like quote unquote like a boy or like Mm -hmm. you know to grow up to be a man like the whole shark chapter has him like Mm -hmm. being a leader to like kill one of the sharks and like get to safety so like in a way like it does kind of argue in favor of like he is like capable as a boy and to grow up to be a man even even if it's like there's still gender role stuff going on in it so it just i guess it like kind of stands out in sort of that ambiguity of like not providing a particularly clear explanation and not really like saying that Dororo is like actually incapable of like growing up to be a man. Um, so I don't know. It, it's kind of like, I would say reading the manga in some ways, like it's very unpleasant to like watch like a bunch of adults, like tell them like, Oh, you're actually a girl. And like, you just need to grow up to be a, like a nice feminine woman. But, like, the text of the story, like, kind of just doesn't really align with that, which just makes what Hyakimaru does, like, very strange in that way, because, like, he is, like, his brother and his mm-hmm. friend. But, yeah, so I think, like, even if Tezuka didn't mean it, like, I think that, like, generous reading is honestly, like, that is, like, what the text kind of gives you. Mm-hmm. And, like, even just stands out among, like, knowing how his other manga, like, play out in mm-hmm. terms of gender. Right. Yeah. We were discussing, like, trying to figure out, like, how Doro's gender, like, fits into, like, these themes of autonomy. And, like, because to me, um, Kyakimaru and, like, the loss of his body parts is symbolic of, like, people, what people lose in war. They lose their own body parts and become disabled. They lose their lives. They lose their loved ones. And so I feel like Dororo is supposed to show that, like, he loses, air quotes, the life he would have had without war of just, like, being, like, a homemaker or, like, a fine woman or something. But then because he's born in wartime, he has to be raised tough and, like, become a leader that will lead, like, the peasant revolution, which is obviously, like, 
necessary and just, but in an ideal world, he would have just been a fine young woman or something, and I I don't care for that. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. Yeah. Yeah, I notice a lot of, like, manga... Um, they'll sometimes frame like a character living as their assigned gender as like a form of freedom, whereas they've been like forced into being a different gender. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fruits basket, um, other stuff like that. And I feel like that's kind of at play too, which is completely different from like the trans perspective of stuff that it's like, no, like it's more freeing to be who you are, like whether which could be like a gender that's different from the one you were assigned at birth. But that's just not how like a cisgender heteronormative point of view, like Tezuka sees it. So Yeah. A charitable reading of Doro would be that he takes ownership of his own gender identity. So even when people misgender him, he's like firm like, no, I am a boy. Right. And I live as a boy. But yeah, there is just such a disconnect between like what the series seems to want us to take away and what it is actually written in terms of like Dororo's arc is like growing into a leader and then leading the revolution. But then also like, oh, there it's a tragic thing that Dororo has to do this because if he had been allowed to be raised as a cis girl, then he could have a much different life. Right. Well, and it's also like a thing in a lot of shonen manga too. Like even when you have like just girl characters straightforward like who do action and they fight or they're like a part of the team and stuff. It's like once like the big conflict is over, they're like, okay, it's time to get married and I'm going to have babies and I'm going to be a wife now. So like, there's like a fear, I guess, like, like one fear where I'm just like, (laughs) Oh, like if they had like really, and I guess you can argue like the 2019 anime might be arguing this, But, like, that, like, once, like, the war is over and, like, the peasants have had their, like, revolt or revolution, that, like, Dororo would just be like, well, my job here is done and, like, I can be a girl now. Time to marry Hyakimaru, maybe. uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I, I mean, and so in some ways, I guess, like, the story being so piecemeal and, like, unfinished is kind of a secret blessing that it's just like i don't get to see what tezuka was really thinking there yeah (laughs) like i don't i don't have to like really uh like like think through like what he was gonna do just based like based off of his history i'm just like i don't i'm just like i i respect tezuka greatly but i also don't trust him like that (laughs) when it comes to this stuff um i also think too as a like a parallel like what we were talking about earlier with like um Dororo and Hyakimaru being like prototypes to like Blackjack and Pinoco. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you can also like obviously like, and I guess this is like a common gender thing too, where like girls that act masculine, even though this is not even close to like what's happening here, um, are like seen as like, oh, it's like you're just immature and you don't know. Mm-hmm. And like, like with Pinoco, her whole like joke is that like she is like a child who insists that she is an adult by like technicality and that she can be like Blackjack's wife. And so, like, I, like, it makes me think, like, is, like, the gender thing also supposed to be a sign of, like, his immaturity, like, the way that, like, he just hasn't, like, or, like, d- that Dororo hasn't grown up yet. But, again, it's, like, a lot of, like, speculation stuff where I'm, like, I don't know because Tezuka has passed away and I can't read his mind retroactively. <laughs> but I can only guess. Yeah. But, like, well, like, honestly, like, I find, like, sometimes, like, trans readings of Tezuka's works can be, like, a little reductive sometimes like i do i do think i do appreciate like you know 
that there's more like trans readings of Dororo mm-hmm. in general, that like there's just more people who are just like, I just read him as a trans boy. Um, because that's what makes sense and I think is just like more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the things that can happen when like time passes and like you can look at a work in different ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a different perspective, an understanding of sexuality and gender identity that we have now than someone like Tesca would have at the time, even though he attempted to explore those ideas in uh, messy and not quite great results in some of his other works. And here, I think, yeah, I agree with you that it's a good thing, I think, for a, a queer reader or a trans reader that he did not fully come to whatever conclusion he was going to do with Dororo's character or whatever implications he was trying to say. Because it does allow you, just in the text itself, to understand and appreciate Doro as the trans male character. Because that's all he, in the story, ever truly identifies as. Right. Uh, not to totally derail the conversation or anything, but I think we should get to Twitter questions soon, uh, unless you guys, like, have any other, like, stray thoughts you want to put out there about Doro beforehand. I guess I just have a little bit more to say about disability, which is that my relationship to Dora as a story is so complicated because, like, I really, I really dislike stories that are about, like, curing disability. So it's, it's kind of like my relationship to it is inherently fraught, even though I wouldn't exactly, like, describe the story in that sense. It is adjacent to it, I would say. But I think it's still, like, because uh, I think what draws me to it is that like Hyakimaru is disabled and I like disabled characters and I guess I'm also just like oh it's just a little bit of representation for me who was born without a sense of smell so but even though that doesn't get brought up in it much I just think it's neat um even though he does eventually get his nose back but it is interesting to me because it's just it's really more just like fantasy um circumstances that make him like give results in something that resembles a real life disability and then Tezuka just like creates psychic powers to compensate for all that anyway. So it's just a very interesting premise, but it's still something I like. But it is also kind of frustrating that he really um, simplifies like a body's functions just to one body part, even though it's really like a system of things. Like Kyakimaru's hearing is represented by his outer ear, just like the cartilage, but it's really like the different parts of the ear in there and how they work connecting to the brain, which I think also makes sense if you consider like his kind of gender essentialist ideas that he ascribes like gender to a single body part too. Like if he can ascribe hearing to a like a single body part and stuff like that. And then there's also, and again, like the appendix um, or like stuff like that. I'm like, well, what, if, what if his appendix was taken from him and then he got a bag and then he got appendicitis? Like, how would he feel about that? <laughs> or something I think about is like, like, what if Hyakimaru gets his eyes backed, but then his eyes get gouged out and then he's blind again? Like, how would he feel about that? Like, they never consider that possibility that once Yakimaru gets his body parts back, he could become, like, disabled for completely unrelated reasons to demons. And I think that's the kind of, like, slightly ableist angle it comes from, is that it just assumes, like, Yakimaru has this perfectly, like, working body to begin with, and that it'll always be that way as soon as he gets his body parts back. Even though, like, technically... The 2019 anime actually uh, does tackle that in the most... uh bullshit way actually because he loses he loses he i i was i had to rewatch this because i was like that couldn't have happened the way because he loses a leg that he had already gotten back he gets eaten off by a demon and so i went oh shit he just like 
That leg's gone I now. Know. And then I was so excited. And then after he kills that demon, he gets the leg back. It's like, oh, it's that easy. <laughs> I was so frustrated. I literally thought like the writers had read my mind when I first read the manga, and they were like, yeah, but what if he like lost it for real, and then he didn't get it back ever again, and then he just got it back again. I I had to wait a week to find that out, and I was really pissed off, like frankly. But um, since I was watching it as it aired, but yeah, I I don't know. I feel like it'll take like another like fifty years to get a Doro that really kind of incorporates disability into it, which is fine because it's not really about disability per se. It's about like autonomy and justice and stuff. But even though obviously those subjects really overlap in real life, but yeah, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. It is a real missed opportunity. And we don't see too many examples of other people in the series who are also dealing with disabilities that mm-hmm. are, unlike Yakimaru's circumstances, not caused by supernatural phenomena and not as easily resolved by de- like defeating demons or stuff. Like the B, like Biwa uh, Hoshi, like the wandering samurai who's sort of Yakimaru's mentor. Like he is a blind man, but he also falls into kind of super powered blind swordsman trope. Of like, you know, he's blind, but he's like a super, he has super good other senses and he's a, you know, great swordsman and stuff like that. Yeah. Pyakimaru is so interesting as like a symbol because he's like a fantasy disabled character, but then he's also symbolic of like realistically disabled characters in the manga, like the, like the orphan kids who are amputees. Or even the one girl who's like one of my favorite characters and they didn't include her in the 2019 anime, um, Oyone, who like has a speech impediment and is like, I think, meant to be like developmentally disabled. I love her. But so it's just so he's kind of like paradoxical that he represents real disabilities, but at the same time, like doesn't. So, yeah, there could have been an opportunity for him to encounter more characters with, you know, quote-unquote natural disabilities or disabilities from other circumstances and then see how like they reflect upon him like their struggles like are mirrored through Yakimaru and him being able to empathize and relate with them that may have shown us some more nuances of Yakimaru that he's not just you know this indomitable like super functional cyborg like uh, <laughs> person right that, you know can just do anything thanks to his prosthetics and also you know at, at, like to your point like if he got his as he continued to get his body parts back and he has that less versatility of being able to just you know like take off his arms and have swords in them or take off his legs and have a gun in them like a yeah like how would he deal with like actually like being less versatile than before and also being more vulnerable because he like he loses these parts again or he he gets hurt like that's it he's not gonna be able to get replacements for them so right yeah yeah that is another angle to the story that current adaptations of it have not yet explored so yeah it would be interesting seeing a new take on doro that would focus on those ideas Mm -hmm. that's all i had to say um i just wanted to say I guess, like, like my final thought is, like, um, I think Carlene mentioned this earlier, but, like, I basically this came up in a conversation we had, and I said, like, Dororo, to me, is, like, a Rosetta Stone of, like, mm-hmm. Tezuka, other Tezuka work. And I guess to expand upon that, like, what I was thinking about was, like, um, like, if I was, like, talking about Tezuka, I think, to somebody, I probably actually, like, especially now that I've read about it, I, or sorry, I've read it, and I've really thought about it for a while, is that I do think, like, if somebody, like, had never, like, wasn't super interested in Astro Boy, but, like, wanted to read Tezuka, like, I probably would end up, like, recommending this, even though it is 
unfortunately out of print um i think it's in print oh it is in print again oh that's good i think it's also digital too oh good yeah the omnibus is in print okay um but i think i would end up recommending this just because like for me like blackjack is my favorite i think that is tezuka like at his best honestly but I think, like, Dororo is kind of Tezuka, like, at his most, I guess is what I would say. (laughs) Like, he explores, like, all these themes of, like, what is, like, a person, like, what's a human through somebody, a character who is, like, both human and not human. It's got, like, a lot of Tezuka, like, throwing spaghetti at the wall. Like, he just is, like, trying all these, like, different, like, things, like, within a set, like, you know, episodic, serialized format, but is, like, he really likes like to try different things in that storytelling while also like having a lot of his like trademarks like his humor and like the way he can draw action um he is also clearly interested in like like war the trauma of war the role of like the relationships between like humans and nature which is like both like the yokai who are like both good and evil even though most of them are are pretty evil in this case um and just like you know the the importance of like familial bonds the ways in which like childhood like really impacts you as like a person and like again like just all like the visual like because like this is like tezuka at kind of like his like mid late point is in his career like his art is just really good and interesting to look at um so like I don't know that that's how like even though like I I can like spend all day picking apart like uh Dororo is just like so rough and like so incomplete but like I also do think like you know it's a good manga to read to get a sense of like his interests and like his like his quirks as a mangaka even if I don't think it's his most polished work like I just think it is really interesting to think about and to like really um take the time and actually like read um especially speaking as someone who like dropped it a while like when i was a teenager because i thought it was too boring and now i'm like no it's so interesting actually well said john do you have any like wrap-up all-encompassing thoughts on doro no um i you know and this was my first introduction to it but i do think the 2019 version is probably the best version because they had that uh hindsight of everything so I would totally mm-hmm. recommend. Mm-hmm. I would I would recommend, even though it's a weird path to walk, to uh, <laughs> watch that show first and then check out the manga because I feel like the manga might leave you uh, confused or uninterested. And I think that the story has a lot of interesting things to say that I think the 2019 anime does the best job at saying. Mm. For sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just gonna say real quick. Um, you know, uh, th- th- this being my my first time reading Dororo, and I-, I haven't seen any of the anime, but now I really want to. Um, I think I would still feel comfortable recommending this, despite how clumsy it is in a few areas. Uh, I think uh, for anyone who cares, on on any list, I gave this like a seven out of ten, and I think that's because I don't I don't want to say the ending ruined it for me because that's not how I feel about it at all. But it was one of those things where like the the further I got in and the closer I got to finishing this, I was like. Oh yeah, this does have an unfinished ending. Like I wonder how this is going to end. And I get it, it ends as fine as it could, I guess, but like it is one of those things where it's like you really feel like by the time you get to the last chapter and as you're reading it, it really does kind of feel like, oh, there's a lot of stuff being tackled in here that I think really required more build up for me to be like more invested, I guess. So, I I'm not going to say the ending ruined it for me because I still really enjoyed reading it. But the ending was one of those things that, like, it is the biggest thing that keeps me from, like, rating it any higher. But that's just me. I would still recommend it wholeheartedly, though. I I still really enjoyed this. And I would agree with 
uh, sentiments here that uh, I think Dora was an interesting transitionary work between Tesca's more uh, child-friendly type stories and then his interest in drawing more adult, mature series. And I think that there's a lot of interesting dynamics between like different things that he likes to draw in terms of both comedy and like serious action as well as more mature themes and topics that are common in a lot of his works. So it's a good like encapsulation of Tezka's qualities, even though I don't think it's his best work or I do think that it's a good representation of things that make him interesting as an artist and as a writer. And I do think there are a lot of very compelling stories still that are absolutely worth reading. Oh, yeah. Ban on the story with Nihel. There's the chapter that we didn't really go over much, but the Fido Mio chapter is a very good story as well. That's also very compelling, like Doros, or he meets kind of a surrogate mother figure, who is also an example of one of the rare examples of a demon in the series who has nuances to her because she is working for this Fido Mio where she's like inviting like these people, luring them to this waterfall where she like pushes it off so the Fido Mio statue can take their faces. But then she actually forms like kind of a, a bond with Doro and becomes protective and affectionate towards them. So she can't go through with that. And that ends up costing her her own life. So I think that's one of the few instances of, in the book where Tessia is also exploring, hey, these demons are also perhaps have some more complexities to them as well. So I thought that that's an interesting story. I think in general, all the stories centered around Doro's arc are very compelling. And I think the ultimate idea of the class struggle of rising and fighting back against oppression is also a compelling thread through the entire book that is encapsulated in Doro's arc. And as well with Nyakamaru's story that complements it. And yeah, there are just a lot of really cool designs of different demons and yokai. There's great uh, action scenes. There's great cinematic paneling from Deska. Again, I think it's a good encapsulation of some of his stronger qualities, as well as some of his messier ones. So I would recommend it ultimately if you are interested. I don't know necessarily recommend it over Astro Boy. I guess we'll get to that question uh, from fans soon. But um, I do recommend it. Uh, but I also would agree with John that if you want like a comp- the most complete, satisfying version of the story... Based on everything I've seen of it and like everything that I know of it, I think the 2019 version is your best bet for a more complete, satisfying story. And from what I've read of it, the newer manga also, I don't know, it hasn't ended yet, but it also has somewhat more satisfying elements to it and how some of the story beats play out too. So I think that it's this original manga is a good comparison point if you want to experience the 2019 anime and have like a more complete version of mind and then go back to see like what it drew from as like the skeleton and its base source of inspiration. But yeah, I mean, I'm just in general, very happy with the conversation we had here today. And uh, I thought we touched upon a lot of great points about the book. And in general, it's super nice to read and talk about a Tezuka manga on this show, finally. Something we've been getting around to for a while. But that does lead us into some fan questions. And I guess since we've been talking about it, let's start with the Reddit question we got from that guy Onyx, who asks, what do you guys think that the original manga did better than the 19 anime and vice versa? Uh, 
anyone? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like we've been dropping hints that, like, a lot of it, like, the, the, the 2019 anime, I think, improves on a lot of the, like, structural qualities of the story. Like, mm-hmm. it has, like, a really distinct plot arc and, like, in, like a real ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the, like, character building, I think, around, particularly Hiyakimaru, like, mm-hmm. like, actually accounting for, like, the ways his body and, like, his circumstances actually affect like his um his like personality and how he interacts with the world Mm -hmm. um i think those are kind of like some of like in a really without getting like too lost in the weeds like those are like the biggest improvements i think the anime does Mm -hmm. i would say um my one thing is that and i wish i wish the 2019 anime did this this is probably my one big issue with it is i'd wish that they had tried to stay closer to tezuka's art style yeah i think that that's one thing the manga has over the anime is that art style um, I wish they tried to at least emulate it. I feel like the anime really just did its own thing. Right. Uh, yeah, I will say I prefer Tezuka. I, I'm fonder of Tezuka's more cartoony designs than the style that was used in the Trinity anime, which fit the tone of the series better because it, it didn't play into comedy as well, but it also still could exaggerate faces and have some malleability in that way. But like, uh, I guess aesthetically, I do like Tezuka's version best. I, I was going to say, like, someone who obviously hasn't seen the anime yet but wants to, like, th- that's kind of the one thing I feel like I am probably going to miss about the manga is that, like, you know, it, it is that sort of, like, very, I guess some could argue, dated style as far as the art goes. I think if the anime stuck too close to that style, I feel like it would turn a lot of people, like, a turn a lot of, like, modern audiences off, probably. That's probably something they were afraid of. Uh... But yeah, I mean, in general, that's something I was kind of afraid of trading in, I guess, is that signature Tezuka style and like the sort of playfulness of his story. And the other thing I would say the manga has a strength over is just Tezuka's creative paneling. Yeah, yeah. And art that he, again, he comes up with some really interesting compositions, really interesting transitions and way of playing with the medium of comics to tell interesting things in the story. And then you, you got moments like, again, Doro, literally, his special attack is just yelling at people and hitting them with sound effects. You can't get that in the anime. So just the comical nature of it, and bo- I mean that both in the, the humorous sense and both in the sense of like it as a comic is a huge asset to Tezuka's original story. I, I really love the 2019 anime because I feel like the people who worked on it like read the manga and kind of had like the same questions I did and then like filled them in with their own like ideas and themes and lore in a way that really comes together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's all we have on comparisons between the anime and manga. We have some questions from Michael Ricard at Jikori Joe on Twitter, who asks a few questions here, starting with, were any of us surprised by the twist about why Dora wouldn't take any bats? They were shocked, but they feel they should have seen the twist coming. So, so here's my thing with that twist real quick, is that, uh, you know, when we first get that reveal of like, Oh, of like the map and like why Doro doesn't want to take any bass. I was, I was fully expecting to go into the like, oh, Doro is actually this or whatever. Like I was kind of waiting for that reveal. I I was just kind of surprised like how long it took to get to that. Because at first I was like, oh, I guess we're not going with that. And then and then they <laughs> went for it. I was like, oh, yeah. Tezuka tricked me. <laughs> it's yeah, so weird. I wonder if he. I wonder if he did initially try to write it as a mislead, but then. Ultimately, yeah, did commit to it. No, he is. Uh, he was. He, he has a Cisco body, but so weird. I. I mean, reading this first time when I was in high school, like I called because it 
it wasn't very subtle about the idea that Doro might be quote unquote a girl, at least that's, you know, cis girl body, but uh I didn't expect necessarily the map, I guess, element of the twist. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, it was definitely funny like reading it, like knowing everything, because like you get to that moment and then Yakimaru's like you're back and i'm like oh okay he's back and then because i had honestly kind of forgotten about the treasure map element even though that's also in the (laughs) anime because it is just kind of just like shoved in there like oh we have this like new thing this new plot thing to worry about and then like i was like oh yeah the treasure and then and then they just move on and (laughs) and you're just kind of left there like oh i guess i got baited like i (laughs) sure like and and i have to imagine like there were readers at the time who like picked up on some of the hints that like tezuka was dropping mm-hmm. but then was like oh i guess it's this sure um and so i kind of feel like obviously like if you thought like oh it's gonna be that Dororo is actually a girl or in quotation marks but like they're not wrong you just don't learn that till later so it's like i mean it's like you get double surprise like tr- i don't know it's it's just it is truly very funny and, yeah I think. And then Itachi's the one who says it. And then when Hyakimaru says it out loud, he knew even before Itachi. It's just so, it's very interesting. I mean, it's like, I guess it's also interesting too, because it's like, how would anyone know he had a treasure map on his back at that point? Like, nobody. There's there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no way, like, anyone could have known that. So it's just like, like. Any of the readers, you mean? Yeah. 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 That's pro- That's the real twist is that, oh, there's a treasure map on his bag. I was expecting a different reveal, but oh, that other reveal is still there. Yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't know about the treasure map at all, and that caught me off guard, so, yeah. How about you, John? Were you surprised by the twist, or...? Uh, I was surprised by the twist that he was a girl, because in the, um, in the, I, I like I said, 2019 anime was my introduction, um, they kind of just drop it, where it's like, uh, in an episode where Hyakimaru gets sick, and then the old woman taking care of him is like, uh, what does he say exactly? Oh no, it's a Dororo gets sick, and then he the woman tells Yakimaru, "Your sister, your sister will be okay." Yeah, and then they just kind of Yakimaru doesn't it doesn't phase him at all. And then the bathing thing, like the hot spring, and once they reveal the map, I was just immediately like, "Oh, so this is where Android Kakaider stole that from." Yakimaru's <laughs> <laughs> like concept of gender in the anime is so interesting because he really like doesn't have one. I don't think he like realizes that a term like sister is like gendered because well, he calls yeah. like Jukai like mama, right? First. Exactly. He doesn't realize like titles and of like relationships like that are gendered. So like, I guess the idea is that even when that like lady says that, he's still he. I don't know if he's supposed to realize, oh, that means Doro's a girl at that point. It's so interesting. I don't think it does, and I don't think he cares, yeah. which is exactly which, is, which makes like, sense. Like yeah. if anything, the bigger revelation is like, oh, this is this kid is like your family now. Like right. this kid is your family now. Yeah. That's the real like lampshade. Yeah, I remember a lot of people had mixed feelings about that scene when it was done in the anime and mm-hmm. that episode first came out. And then, of course, the mixed feelings would continue, like, how the story <laughs> handled Dora's gender. But yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that they chose to let the audience know that that way, as opposed to doing it akin to how it was done in the manga. Mm-hmm. But speaking of adaptations, uh, have any of us read the remake manga, The Legend of Dora Yakamura by Satoshi Shiki? I have not. I have read the first volume, and... Yeah, so what do you think about it? 
I, I, yeah, I read the first three volumes in preparation for this because at first I kind of wanted to read it, but then I saw like volume two has like Doro in a woman's kimono, and I was like, I don't want to deal with that. But <laughs> then I, then I sat down and, and I read it all um, in preparation for this, and I actually like it a lot. So mm-hmm. it worked out. The art's really good. I mean, Satoshi Shiki's the guy who also does the Attack on Before the Fall manga, which I also really like. <laughs> that also has like. Satoshi Shiki is a really great action artist, and, like, there's some really cool stuff in this manga. Like, this two-page spread, like, when he cuts, like, the garbage river demon in half in, like, the second chapter is super good. Mm-hmm. Like, there's really dynamic stuff. And uh, I like the design character designs a lot, too. I appreciate that he increased the role of the Biwamaru as, like, more of a companion to them. I think it's a, it's a good adaptation. Yeah, I really like Legend of Doro and Hakimaru's take on Tahomaru because this one, it's like, um, this manga like symbolizes power with like physicality. It seems like, like, um, like Daigo is like a brick house. He's like huge and muscular <laughs> and stuff. Whereas, where like he's just kind of a guy in the original manga. But then they make a point of like the way they phrase it is that Tahomaru was born frail. So Daigo like didn't see any hope in him and was like really dismissive of him like as an heir because he wasn't physically strong. And then um, it turns out that like Tahomaru is also actually an amputee because he gives up one of his arms and like kind of the side of his body to like become part demon so he also uses prosthetics so he's a lot more of a parallel to Hyakimaru too like they call it out they're like oh like we, we were both abused by Daigo and we both like literally have prosthetics made by Jukai too so we say we share that father as well it's very interesting yeah I really liked their take on him yeah yeah that was really cool that said they do introduce the Doro gender stuff a lot earlier too he gets like he does get like when they're in like Bondi's village he gets like like someone like I don't I don't remember exactly how it went, but they like put him in a woman's kimono and he's like, Oh, what's this? I don't wanna wear this. But then Tahomaru like comes across Doro when he's dressed like that and I guess one of the ways they want to like flesh out his character and make him more sympathetic is to make him like attracted to Doro oh. as like a girl. So he's heterosexual Oof. now too. <laughs> Which um yeah, only three volumes are out in English so far, which is as much as I've read. Apparently, there's five volumes in Japan, so it's already longer than the original Doro manga, too. And I am honestly very excited to see where it goes with its takes on the characters, but um, I'm not looking forward to Hetero, Tahomaru, and Dororo. Though. Yeah, that Doro, Tahomaru pairing does not sound great. And in general, I'm also yet uh, wary now of like uh, how it's going to handle Doro's gender stuff. But mm-hmm. man, the rest of Tohomaru's characterization and Argus parallel to Hakamaru is super fascinating to me. And I really like the first volume already, so I'm definitely curious to, and keen to read the rest, see where it goes with it. Yeah, I'm excited to check it out. I'm glad. I'm, I guess I'm. I'm glad I checked it out. Is what I meant to say. Yeah, it's interesting. This manga came out around the same time as the 2019 anime, but it, it's a completely different take from that anime and even the original right. manga. So it's cool to just have another interpretation that's completely different of the story that does some things interestingly and differently in a cool ways, but also has its own like baggage, like the rest of them. It's like no version that's completely satisfying in every regard. 
Yeah, it, you really, you kind of have to read every version or play every version too with the game yeah. to get like a full <laughs> idea. Yeah. You gotta play Blood Will Tell for follow up on the idea that your Yakima has to. So kill you can Rora. know every single body yeah. part. Like, so. Oh yeah, because the Legend of Doro and Yakimaru, they still have it, forty eight body parts, and I read it, and I was just like, "Are you sure you want to do that? You want to do all forty eight? You're gonna have to invent some new demons then, or you're gonna really have to like." combine much more demons into the new way. I might be wrong. Three volumes in, he's only got his eyes back. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember correctly, that's all he's got back so far. And I'm like, this is going to take forever. Yeah, and it's interesting because the manga is coming to an end. I remember earlier this year, we oh, really? the news came out. So it's like, <laughs> I, I doubt that they're going to be able to get to all 48 of those demons. No, no, no! Just, just, just fight! Just fight a demon made of like whatever other demons are left. That's that's what Tesco <laughs> yeah. almost did. Mm-hmm. For real, this time. even Tesco called out that was a dumb idea. When <laughs> 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 he re- reflected on it, like, uh, oh, I just need to get this to an end, so I just threw a bunch of demons in- into one. <laughs> oh. But yeah, I think that leads us to our last question from uh, Michael Rickard, which is how does Doro compare to Tezuka's other shonen slash shoujo manga like Astro Boy, Trident of the Sea, Blackjack, Princess Knight? And uh, do we like the Doro more or less than those examples? I think of those titles, I've actually only read Princess Knight and Blackjack. I actually personally do not like Princess Knight a lot. Me too. It's... I'm sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's like it's like it's so steeped in like his, like Tezuka's like gender stuff yeah. that it's like oh like it's good to read as like obviously like it's one of his most iconic characters and mm-hmm. has clearly influenced a lot of other like girl action protagonists of that type. But it's just kind of like oh wow okay we're really in it now. Um, but I do think like I've said. Like, I think because I think of Dororo as like a proto Blackjack, I think Blackjack is just like a much more polished version of like a story that's like, it's got a lot of episodic elements to it, but it also like has some serial qualities in terms of like exploring Blackjack as a protagonist and his backstory. But I think Blackjack actually leans a lot more episodic because yeah. it's just a medical drama. Longest... And I think that kind of works. Oh, no, yes. Oh, you go. <laughs> uh, the only comment is that the longest run Blackjack I remember was uh, about 100 pages. It's really, there aren't any multi-part stories. Uh, they're generally, like, sh- shorter chapters. And, uh, yeah, pretty episodic. Yeah, the most is, like, you have to, like, piece together Blackjack's backstory, like, spread across various volumes is kind of the closest thing to that. Yeah, there is just a tread of, like, his. we learn more about his backstory, and then there are some recurring characters, or important characters to Blackjack that referenced again in other stories. Right. Yeah. So I think Blackjack, I think, like, utilizes a lot of, like, his elements, like, both, like, elements from Dororo and, like, just Tezuka's trademark elements, like, I think in ways that just fit that story better. His, like, humor feels a lot less jarring in just, like, a medical drama, for example, even when it's really slapstick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, I think he, like, really polishes, like, the idea of, like, an anti-hero protagonist. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing with Hiyakimaru is, like, he honestly just acts like a guy. Like, he <laughs> he's, like, mostly, like, generally, like, he he's a loner and he's violent, but he generally acts, like, with a lot of... I, I guess, like, like he's, I don't know, he's just kind of an upstanding guy. He has a generally good sense of ethics and morality. Yeah. But, like, Blackjack is, like, an actual asshole. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's rude, yeah. he's cold, he's aloof, he's, like, he, he just acts, like, really mean and, like, will honestly even, like, 
harass or like intimidate people to get what he wants yeah but he also like is obviously like he's supposed to like oh he's got like a heart of gold like at the end of the day he like Mm -hmm. looks out for justice and he has like a really strong sense of like integrity and like ethics so like for me like i'm just like like i see that is just like a stronger version of like what he wanted to do with Dororo. Even though like, I mean, there's no like perfect like piece of art. It's still got a lot of even like Tezuka's flaws, but I just think like the ev- everything just feels like a little better utilized. But I will say like there are like elements of Dororo that just like stand out on their own. I think the stuff like obviously about like cycles of violence and like war and trauma and how that can really just like disrupt lives. Like it just is much more like because it's a little bit more serialized and it has like a central like running plot thread it just kind of i think it's a lot clearer in that way and like uses the episodic elements to really illustrate like all these different people who have been affected by like the state of like living through turmoil and not having any kind of stability and obviously like you're not going to really get any yokai in like blackjack so so like those there's still like elements that i think like I, like, I am not saying, like, just skip Dororo and only read Blackjack. Like, there, mm. there are things about Dororo that I really like. And, um, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of my thoughts on compared to his other works like that. Awesome. I agree. And, John, how about yourself? Well, my thing is that I've never really been a fan of the base form of any of Tezuka's works. Like I said, I've always, I've always looked into his works to get more uh, information on other stuff. And similarly, my favorite interpretations of Tezuka stuff is when it was adapted by other people. I'm not a big fan of Astro Boy, but I actually love the Pluto manga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought the Blackjack manga didn't really catch me. It was, like you said, it's it feels like you're watching like short episodes of a TV show. But then the Dezaki OVAs from the 90s are incredible, where it's like each one is like a little movie. So that's how I felt. Dororo was just another one of those where it's like, the manga's fine. It has a good idea. It has a good premise. And it has interesting art. But then there's an adaptation that just like perfected it. So it, it really felt like, oh, this is another one, uh, another instance of that. Yeah, I think a lot of adaptations of this his works really shine and can enhance a lot of his base material. I would say, though, that for me, I think Doro falls kind of in the... I think it's definitely, like I mentioned before, it's one of the more memorable stories for me because a lot of these stories that were mentioned here in this tweet, asked why I tried in Blackjack, it's been many years since I read them, and I can't tell you that much about Triton or Princess Knight off the top of my head. I would've, but, like, I remembered a lot about Doro, uh, even... Like, there was stuff I forgot that like, I was surprised about when I was reading it, but there was a lot about the character, a lot of stories that I remembered, even though I hadn't read it in nearly 10 years. So I think that's a strength to it. I definitely would agree, though, that Blackjack is even stronger in the eclecticness of the stories, in how much stronger Blackjack is as a character. Uh, and... Yeah, I, I think that is a stronger showcase of his work. But actually, my favorite of his Shonen Shoujo stuff is actually Astro Boy. I think that Astro Boy has a lot of wild, fun stories. And the cast of characters I love a lot. And I still remember fondly. And I think that my favorite storyline, uh, one of my favorite storylines Seska has ever done, was the Once Upon a Time Astro Boy Tales arc, which was like three volumes, like volume 7 to 9 of Astro Boy. Where it's just like Asboy is like traveling through time in different realities. 
And so he like he meets up with like a little alien friend at one point and has a story with him. And then like most notably, like there was a story where he ends up like in the Vietnam War and like sacrifice himself to stop a bomb from blowing up like a, a, a country basically. And then that transitions into a retelling of his backstory, which is now framing like robot rights in a parallel to the ongoing at the time, like civil rights uh, conflicts in the United States. And then there are like some very like uh, powerful imagery and like powerful commentary within that arc, and uh, yeah, I, that was one of the most memorable like storylines to me. And like I still think about it, even though I haven't read it in a while, and I still think about Blue Knight stories from original Astro Boy. That's a great character. Uh, I they actually really love the original Greatest Robot on Earth storyline. Like I actually. Actually, as much as I like Pluto, I love Pluto. I actually I read Pluto first. I actually, there are things about the original Greatest Robot on Starline that I like more than uh, Pluto. Mainly in Pluto as a character and his relationship to Astro in that story, and then you know that story as like a commentary and conflict on like the New Year arms race uh, at the time, as opposed to Pluto then reframing itself around the conflict in the Middle East and uh, then Iraq War and stuff. So uh, it's interesting comparing contrast and story stories. But Astro Boy, still, even though I, I still find myself thinking about storylines of it a lot. And I think I, even though like a lot of people I think would dismiss it as, oh, that's his most child-friendly work. I think there's a lot of really strong social commentary in it that uh, holds up on par with even it's like more mature storylines like Oji Kirihito or Buddha and stuff. So Astroboy of these titles is still my personal favorite, then Blackjack, and then I think Doro would be like square in the in the middle. But uh, like I said before, I would still recommend it because it is, again, as a sh- it's the shortest among those. So it's a good encapsulation of uh, a lot of Tezuka's strengths as an artist and writer, as well as some of his weaknesses. But... Yeah, that does it for our Twitter questions. And I think with that, we are about to draw our podcast for close. So I want to thank you guys once again for joining us to discuss Doro. This was a really awesome time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. This was uh, this was a really good conversation. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. And we definitely enjoy all your guys' work and your writings and your videos. So definitely uh, we want folks to check out your stuff. And so, yeah, let's have you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet to find up all your work. And John, how about we start with you? Where can they find you on social media and find your channel? Um, Just my YouTube channel, Mercury Falcon. Uh, I have a video on Dororo. So if you look up Mercury Falcon Dororo, you'll find me through that. It's really good. It's a good video. Yeah. Thank you. Mentioned before, I really, really enjoyed it, and why I want to have you on. And I really been enjoying your videos. Like I started following you late last year, or this year. I really like your takes on uh, uh, Ishinomori manga, on a lot of uh, Mushi Pro stuff, a lot. And so, yeah, like yeah, I've really been enjoying your videos a lot. Oh, and your Tatsunoko stuff, especially. Like that was super great. We covered Speed Racer earlier this year, and like I really enjoyed your. A video of like the original mm-hmm. anime and the history of Tatsunoko video was also very very helpful for like learning more before our discussion of that but yeah and Carlene, Malia, uh, I don't uh, we have folks uh, find out where they can find you and your blog. Yeah um, so our blog is coherentcats.com um, personally for me I actually haven't written anything in a while due to me having too. a full due to having a full time job and uh 
I don't know, the pandemic. Uh, yeah. the, um, <laughs> the economy. The economy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm also on Twitter. Um, my handle is um, Catfishing Words. And I also wrote an article for Anime Feminist. Um, I honestly can't even remember the title of it right now, but it is actually about specifically MW and uh, Song of Apollo and basically the ways that they both like explore gender and sexuality in kind of like heteronormative ways, but like in very different ways. Those are both works by him. I like actually like MW a lot. I don't like Song of Apollo that much, but I do think they're very interesting. Uh, they're very interesting works by Tezuka and they're both also just interesting like Gekiga that he did basically mm-hmm. um particularly mw but yeah so that's where you can find me talking more about tezuka <laughs> yeah i am on the same website i haven't updated in a while i am working on a Yu-Gi-Oh gx post it's happening so <laughs> nice but uh, my Twitter is Flamwenko Girl. It's also very inactive because I'm busy with my bookstore job. And on that note, please be nice to uh, booksellers this holiday season with the manga shortage. Yeah. Just PSA to everyone. Absolutely. Definitely check out their work. It's all great stuff. And yeah, I'm looking forward to your GHRL. I really, I mentioned it before, but I really liked your Yu-Gi-Oh! references and uh, Western pop culture media article this year. So like always game thank for you. more Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, analysis. But yeah, thank you guys again for joining us for Doro. We'd love to have you all back to for other topics in the future. But for now... I think it seems we are going to have to go our separate ways. And where we go from here, no one knows. But it's said that 50 years hence, the Flames of War are going to burn down the Hall of Podcasts that housed all our network, and this podcast included. But until then, feel free to listen to it. And until then, we will also head out into our community shoutouts and wrap up the show. Again to Maya, Carlene, and John for coming on the show to discuss Dora with us. Again, it was really great to revisit the series with some fresh perspectives, some cool perspectives on the series in terms of the context of Tesca's career and the context of the period of the time in terms of the shift towards more violent Gekka type stories. It was great to have their perspectives, and definitely you should check out their writings and videos on Doro for even more of their thoughts on the series. Molly wrote a great piece for Anime Feminists exploring how Tetsuke explores sexuality and gender in his works, particularly in this piece called The Transcended and The Perverted Sexuality and Apollosing of N.W., basically looking at both of those stories and looking at how Tetsuke ends up reinforcing a lot of heteronormativity and homophobia, despite attempts in M.W. at least to say, hey, you know, 
relationships between two people of the same sex are okay. So an example, you know, a lesbian couple in series, but then there's a messy yes between Fadagurai and Michio in that series and unintentional homophobia in there. It's it's a big mess in terms of how Tesca approaches these talking themes. As we discussed in the approach to Doro on this episode in terms of how Doro is a trans-coded character, like this piece does a good job exploring kind of the messiness Tesca has when approaching queer teens and how he ends up reinforcing a lot of cis heteronormative views. But it's a great piece, a great analysis on that aspect of Tesca's work in two different series of his. Similarly, Carlene did a really great piece looking at Doro from a social commentary lens in terms of how Doro explores a community that is prospering in the face of the punishment or the loss of autonomy of an individual. And basically what Carly does is that she compares the 2019 anime to a short story by Ursula Le Guin called Those Who Walk Away From Omez or The Ones Who Walk Away From Omez. Where, I mean, in both stories, basically, the prosperity of the community, the system, is all predicated on the suffering of an individual. And basically, in both stories, it is basically made right that there cannot be any possible just system in which people benefit from the suffering of other people. That is just a reinforcement of a a class system based on subjugation suffering. So... Like in both stories, it navigates that the only true liberation for a better system is for the uh, suffering individuals to reclaim their autonomy. And I think it's a really cool comparison between these two different pieces of works and how, you know, they explore this idea of like people in like exploited classes basically fight to reclaim their sense of autonomy and sense of ownership over themselves. And that is how progress towards a truly just system, a truly prospering community can truly be achieved. And of course, John did a great video that I had out on a previous episode, but I'll mention up again because it's appropriate that Andoro doing a franchise retrospective on the manga, the TV series from 1969 and the modern one from 2019, looking at how each of them approaches the story, differences in adaptation, and how the 2019 anime kind of took ideas from Tezuka's original and refined it and fleshed them out in really strong ways, particularly with some specific stories, like the story of Neil, the girl Yakamaru fell in love with, the relationship he has with Tahomaru, and how the series also kind of fleshed out and improved upon Hayakimaru regaining his body parts and how that affected like his character arc and his development as a person over the course of that series in the Red Knight anime. So I think it's a really great piece kind of looking how three different interpretations of the story basically approached the subject matter and material and how the story ended up getting refined over time over the years through the adaptations. Similarly great videos were made by Mother's Basement a while ago, back when the Train 19 anime was airing, also looking at how the Doro anime had fleshed out details of the manga in adaptation, particularly in the early material regarding 
the backstory with Chukai and the opening scenes of this where Doro and Hyakumaru is meeting. And there was a great piece by Bonsai Pop recently that also looked at Doro and all different mediums like the original manga, the 2019 anime, the 1999 anime, as well as the Legend of Doro and Hyakumaru manga and did great comparisons between each of them and how it approaches different teams in terms of social commentary, in terms of its gender commentary. And in terms of exploring disability and how, yeah, evaluating how each of the stories successfully tackles those topics. So all three of those stories are really great further a deep dive into the different mediums that Doro has been told in, the different interpretations of it. Going back to specific themes, uh, there was a great piece by Mitch Finzel for Anifem on how the Doro 2019 anime represents disabilities in the story, presents characters with disabilities. Going over the historical realities of the time period of how disabilities were treated historically and how Doro as a work kind of mirrors that in both good and bad ways. Also looking at how Doro's premise inherently comes from an ableist standpoint and how the series is manages to mitigate this by reframing the quest as less a matter of like you need to become human again and retain your body parts but no it's like a, a decision made out of justice or a sense of justice of like hey i was wrong i need to take back what's mine that was taken from me and then just in general though looking at disability representations through how various characters were depicted in the series beyond Yakima himself going over some positives but also a lot of negatives in terms of some of the elements of tokenism that some characters that are minor in the series or recurring fall into so it is a good evaluation of Doro as like a mixed bag in terms of a story with disabled characters and disabled protagonists that has like some really enjoyable things in it but there's a lot of things that for people with disabilities they may not identify and it's not quite accurate or like the best representation. For more deep dives into the themes of Doro there was a great piece there's a series of great pieces, really, by Marco's Zero Requiem, as we've mentioned uh, and had him on before for our Sign Boys episode. He did a lot of great pieces on the Doro 2019 anime when it was airing. One of his pieces explored how Doro, a series, basically makes an argument for it being necessary to have both masculine and feminine attributes to be truly human, or... I mean, less specifically gendered, like to have a mix of instrumentalist and expressive qualities. Basically challenging this idea of patriarchy in the system that diminishes or looks down on uh, feminine attributes or expressive empathetic attributes in favor of instrumentalism and showing that through the example of several characters in the story, that the most well-rounded characters are those who have a mix of those qualities. Which I think is a really interesting and great look at different dyna- character dynamics in Dora and also like how, yeah, like it explores a different way and like this idea of how to be feel human is to like tap into different parts of your emotions. It's a part of your understanding of your gender and your, and your gender expression. So I thought that was a great piece exploring that. And then Marcus O.S. had a really great piece 
on the history behind Dororo, basically the uh, an overview of the Sengoku Jitai period and some of the traditions Dororo is borrowing from in terms of like Buddhist aesthetics and a lot of yokai and Japanese culture that's featured in the series. And that's a great overview if you want like some context for a lot of the cultural background of Dororo. And there's a really good deep dive piece Marco also wrote on a specific episode of the Doro 2019 anime, which is an anime original episode about a Jorogumo silk spider demon that ended up, you know, kind of being humanized a bit when taken it by, like, kind of a kindly person. And it was, like, one of the episodes in the show that kind of showed nuances to the demons in the series, that they weren't entirely evil. But nonetheless, Yakubara still slayed this character, still fought this character. So, like, this is a... Great piece the Marcus wrote just exploring the, how this episode explored Buddhist ideas as well as just the concept of the Jorogomo spider in particular and its history and how that was like reflected and explored through the episode, which I thought was really interesting. For more historical overviews on Dororo, I mean, the best resource is definitely Ted's Cat in English overview of Dororo's publication history, which is very comprehensive in terms of outlining the publication history of Dororo, as well as, yeah, like how it panned out in terms of when it got adapted into an anime series too. And there's also a great piece by Sakagaboru that looks at the history of Doro, both the manga, the 1969 anime, and the 2019 anime, specifically mentioning, like, kind of the strengths of each adaptation, but also, you know, more specifically going into the production history of the anime series in particular, as well as highlighting some of the key figures and the key aspects that make each of the different adaptations stand out, which is a really good piece, again, evaluating and comparing the different qualities of uh, the two different interpretations. And then to move back in two pieces, evaluating Doro as a trans-coded character or a trans character in the series, Sinclair August did two really good pieces, kind of looking at how the original manga portrayed Doro, as well as how the 2019 anime portrayed Doro. And they favor the 2019's interpretation a little more. They were disappointed by the ending, but they feel that the 2019 anime was a little defter in terms of how it portrayed how Doro was kind of coping and trying to navigate their gender and their identity, in, especially in their interactions with other people and their defenses with other people. And while pointing out some aspects about how the original manga has some, you know, baggage in terms of like how the characters are in that we had also gone over in the podcast. But I think both of their articles on Dora were pretty w- well examined in terms of like how Dora was portrayed in both interpretations, like as a trans character. So I thought they were highly worth recommending. And then finally, I would like to recommend a new podcast uh, that I just got into recently when like kind of looking for other people's like a 
thoughts on Doro, and that's the world is my burrito podcast, which has a fun concept in terms of like the host basically takes a piece of pop culture and they peels back the layers, like the layers of burrito, which is kind of like a fun aesthetic gimmick to it. But what's really fun and nice about the podcast is that he, you know, specifically focuses on a lot of Japanese pop culture, and especially he's done a lot of episodes on Samutetsuka's manga. And his very first episode was on Doro, and he did a really great job of like putting it in a historical and cultural context, analyzing the themes, the strengths of Tezuka's art, and discussing like the storytelling. So I think that his Doro episode is really great, but I really like all his like episodes on Tezuka stuff because he really is well researched on Tezuka and the series like so he pulls in a lot of interesting insights and really is able to place the the series and how they're written in a good context in terms of Tezuka's overall career as well as it in its own time and place as a piece of social commentary and like what it reflects upon in terms of like the culture of manga at the time, culture of Japan at the time. So I really recommend all of his pieces on Tessia's manga, but the Dora episode obviously uh, highly recommended as a shout out in this episode in particular. And he's done other really good uh, episodes on like some non-Japanese things. Like mainly he did a really great episode on the Green Knight, which is all about like the history behind you know, the poem and the film. And that's like, as long as episode date, it's really comprehensive, really good. But yeah, I really enjoy his podcast. So definitely check it out. The world is my burrito. And that about does it for my community shout outs for this episode. A lot of further reading and watching. If you want to deep dive more into Doro and the various themes of it and, and analyzing the storytelling, but that'll be about it for our conversation on this series for now and for today. And until next time, we I think it's time to just head off into our wrap-up and let y'all know where to find us. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we do that real quick, I do just want to say that, uh, I mean, I guess in, in terms of what you can look forward to next episode, I I think it's pretty safe to say... That on the next episode of the podcast, we will be covering Gegege no Kitaro, the original Kitaro manga from Shigeru Mizuki. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to uh, to talk about Kitaro and to especially have on the plethora of guests that we have on, which uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep hush about for now because, uh, boy, we got a really stacked group of people to come on to talk about Kitaro. And uh, some, some people that we've never had on the show before. Some that we've had on uh, years and years ago that we're finally having on. Uh, if you follow us closely enough, you probably have a pretty good idea of who's going to be on for that podcast. But uh, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to keep it a surprise for those who don't know. It'll make it that much cooler when uh, when you do listen to the episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun one. Like, I am looking forward to our conversation on Kataro because, like, our guests are we know they're going to bring a lot to table in terms of the conversation and their backgrounds. So yeah, like it's going to be a fun one. Continuing our team of looking back at some classic horror themed manga for this Halloween season. Oh yeah. But yeah, I guess until then uh, we'll let the good people know where they can find us. Uh, Lum, starting with you. You can find me at Lum on Twitter. It's Lum 
anywhere else than I am. Animation Revelation Analyst, wherever there's alum Namiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can read my reviews on allthatchannel.com. We got a lot of book Tim and Law reviews going on. Look forward to more on there. You can also find on there other podcasts I do, including on Reside Movies, the show where we primarily talk about anime movies, and Lum Squad, the show where me and my good friend Andrew AC used to talk about the wonderful and wacky world of Yubukarashi series. Yeah, sorry, I'm having a lot of fun going through his release of the manga as well as movies on our own control. So look forward to more episodes and new episodes on there. As well as pretty much every podcast platform you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere that you can get podcasts. And you can follow Lump Squad on Twitter at Lump underscore squad. And also find us on YouTube. Just look for Lump Squad on the channel and you'll find us. And if you like the art and illustrations I do for our podcasts and the animation illustrations I do in general, you can find a lot of that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtworks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce my fair share of podcasts outside of this one that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, I have a page dedicated to whatever I'm doing at the moment, uh, including past projects and uh, a lot of guest spots I've had on over the years on other podcasts. So if you're interested in anything else I happen to be a part of, Again, please go to my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com where you can find the rest of my podcasts. Uh, and I guess as for Manga Mavericks and All Comic, you can find every episode of Manga Mavericks at all-comic.com. That's where you can find every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, we're at the $2 tier in particular. Uh, sometimes, basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited early before it's supposed to go out on our main feed, that's basically the first place where we'll uh, upload it. Uh, so you do have the chance to listen to some, at least some podcasts early. But again, that does also kind of depend on our schedule and uh, how much we have done at any given time. Uh, so if you want more reliable content, you want to go to our $5 tier, where we upload at least one bonus podcast at the end of every month. Right now, as for our latest bonus podcast, you could listen to our podcast where we had our good friend Maxi from Friendship Ever Victory on to talk about Kohei Horikoshi's original My Hero one-shot, basically the the prototype one-shot for the eventual My Hero Academia series that we all know and love. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just in general, it's a pretty good cap-off to our previous uh, Kohei Horikoshi month of podcast, where we basically went over uh, his previous series plus uh, My Hero Academia Smash. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in, in general, if you sign up for a $5 tier, you'll have a pretty neat collection of a bunch of bonus podcasts that we've done over the years. And they'll be all available to you at the $5 tier. And uh, just in general, if you sign up for a Patreon, it really helps us kind of keep the lights on. And, uh, you know, it's the it's really the best way for you guys to support us if you if you so wish to. Uh, again, that's at patreon.com slash Please sign up if uh, if you're interested. Um, but as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us at Manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Manga Mavericks, uh, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and sometimes some exclusive content. Again, youtube.com slash Manga Mavericks. Subscribe. Uh, email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Doro or any of Osama Tezuka's works? 
or do you want to tell us what you're reading or whatever you want us to read on the show? Uh, email us anything about Mongo or the podcast or, or whatever, really. We'll, we'll, we'll read your email on the show. We love getting emails. Again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on a bunch of different platforms at this point. But especially on Apple Podcasts, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show and helps people uh, find it. And, you know, just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys because whatever feedback we get, positive or negative, we try to incorporate that as best we can to try to make the show that much better. But I think, yeah, that's going to be about it for this episode of the podcast. This has been episode 179 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 180. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.